Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Yeah, so it looks like you've got a nice space there. Yeah, this is my my home office. Um, you know, COVID, all the things had to had to make the home space a little more dialed. So that was one of the little bits of um, how do I say this? Little bits of medicine that came out of that experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah, we yeah. had like interesting times. I ended up having to shut down pretty quick. Australia was really hard on their yeah. situation. And I was just getting hammered with emails and phone calls about people not really understanding why I couldn't work, but they could go to a physio or to the doctor. So I put an application in and I was able to, with a medical um, note, I was able to see people one-on-one in the space that I have as well. So I was only down for about three or four weeks and then I was back up and running while everyone else was locked down. So it felt a bit sneaky, but at the same time, at the same time, I think the work was pretty important, especially as a lot of people were turning to exercise to help themselves through those times. And if they were having mm-hmm. problems, you know, you kind of, you can't keep riding like that. So yeah, that's sort of what happened in, in Australia here. We were locked out for quite a long time. So yeah, yeah you guys, you were like proper curfew. You could only leave the house. Was it like Spain where you guys could only go to the grocery store that was closest to your home? That kind of thing? It was in our local um, government area. So we sort of, everyone's subdivided into the areas. And recently our area had merged with a bunch of others. So we had, instead of just Manly, which would have been really small, we had the entire Northern beaches. So we were riding road bikes up to the national park and had a bit of gravel and six, seven, eight, nine different beaches we could go to. And so we're pretty lucky. Mm. It wasn't, it wasn't bad. And to be honest, when people cancel and when stuff happens, when I can't work, I generally surf. So it's really mm. easy six minutes to the ocean and generally speaking if you do spontaneous sort of surfs you get much better waves and much less crowds um mm-hmm. i just find that yeah it's it's always worth the uh the effort to sort of make sure that you're not working too hard mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just pretty fun so i agree but it seems like it seems like you've been working really hard how's the thesis going 
Uh, good. Well, uh, thesis is in progress. So <clears throat> thanks <clears throat> for context. Uh, in case people don't know, I just, uh, Aaron's referring to my final class in the Czech Institute that I took. Uh, that's IMS level five, integrated movement specialist level five. And uh, to complete that class officially, I have to complete an exam, which is 150 questions. And none of them are multiple choice or almost none of them are multiple choice. They're all basically short essay. So it's, it's a whopper of an exam. And then I have to paint a painting of my uh, myth, which we learned about during class. And then I also have to present a thesis, which is going to be around 10,000 words. That's the last part. There's no, there's no real deadline on the thesis. Actually, we asked Paul when the deadline was, and he just sort of said, well, whenever you want to officially be an IMS five. So, wow. That's so the thesis will be the last man. one. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Oh, good luck, sure. man. That's, that's I love how you are always, um, sort of introducing new techniques and new things into your program. I think one of the first things I learned about from you was the Aldoa techniques and stuff like that. And I kind of try to put that into context of people with Kit Lachlan stuff and things like that, where you're just, you know, sort of really pulling the body a little bit further and using mm -hmm. muscles, to tweak it a little bit differently than you sort of normally would. So yeah, I, I think it's cool that you're sort of able to do that in your, in your practice and to give people that with the fitting as well. So that's pretty cool. But I guess one thing that I, I've actually written some stuff down. Okay. Because I really... I really appreciate how you bring so much, um, so much of bike fitting kind of, you bring in the rest of the rest of people's existence in, in the world and what they do and sort of try to show how it's not really what you're doing on the bike every day or, you know, so many times a week. It's, it's more about what you do with your body the rest of the week and, and how that kind of plays into the fit and how it plays into how you feel on the bike. And, um, I just created a bit of like a, a bit of a web with, with some, some notes just about all the different things that go into, um, you know, a bike fit and, and, you know, starting with the, the body all through the skeleton, all through the sort of soft tissue and, um, you know, sort of certain discrepancies and hydration and all these kind of things. And I just, um, yeah, I really tried to do that as well with my customers, like really incorporate all these ideas that, you know, when they're standing in the office, so they're walking, um, in the hall to go to the elevator as opposed to the stairs or, you know, like, can you be doing something right now to help your fit, help your cycling, to ride faster if that's what you want to do, to ride longer if that's what you want to do? If the answer is no, you kind of need to sweep the doorstep a little bit, take take a step back and kind of, you know, make sure that you're, again, I think you mentioned it as well with um, a recent podcast about just having a congruent line between your training and your lifestyle. Um, and mm -hmm. I think, that, uh, yeah, it's just a really, a really good point. And I think that people have, um, yeah, a lot to learn with regards to how all of that works. And for me, you know, with my practice, again, I just try really hard to make sure that people understand that it really is about the small things that we do all the time and not the big things we do on the weekend. Um, mm. so yeah, I've just always really enjoyed that about listening to your podcast and your guests and sort of hearing about what they have to say and, and how they sort of specialize in, in one particular space. And I guess in, in my case, I don't really specialize in anything, but, um, I sure have a lot of fun, you know, fitting bikes and doing, um, good work hopefully. And, uh, you know, sort of practicing what Steve has taught me and sort of what you and, um, even the rest of the guys, I know every single time I stick a spoke nipple onto someone's foot and prepare them for the pain that may come, 
I blame Jerry, right? <laughs> yes. Little things like that, right? So I, I blame Jerry for that one too. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. There is a um, uh, another sort of interesting sort of thought too, and that is I was listening recently to another podcast about being a boss and and sort of um, you know running a company and all these kind of big big sort of things. And what the gentleman was saying was really that we we don't really want to lead as a leader with our with our gut. It doesn't work. Like you, like great leaders don't just believe they can do something and do it. They they actually have a process that they follow. And I think that that's really important to remember when we're fitting too. You know, it's not something where you go in just because you feel like someone needs to put their seat up, it, that just doesn't work like that. You need to process to be able to go through and look at all the factors that are affecting this position and then making a decision based on, you know, sort of fact and maybe a little bit of intuition, but also, you know, it, it has to be um, a little bit more straightforward than that, I think. So for me, it's mm. been a big deal sort of dealing with, I guess you just call it yourself or your ego and then, you know, what customers actually need and, you know, sort of how to bring that across sometimes too, because that can be a difficult conversation, I guess, if, if people have things quite wrong and you have to make a change there, whether it's about the rest of their life or whether it's about their, mm. their bike. Yeah. So, yeah, but no, honestly, dude, it's just so much fun. And I really, um, yeah, I really enjoy the work. And like I say, I love your work as well. It's been really, uh, quite good. I'm, I'm quite envious of all your gravel escapades. I, I've missed a couple of <laughs> recently. Cause I had a bit of extra work on and other things in life, but, um, yeah, it sounds like you're, you're smashing it on the bike and, and you're feeling probably better than ever really, which is amazing as you sort of think about getting older. Generally, we think about that degradation as opposed to becoming stronger in growth and stuff like that. So yeah, that's really cool. Thank you. Thank you for all your, your kind words there. I, um, you brought a lot of things to mind as you were, as you were talking, I really don't like <clears throat> when people come to me and they, we get the cliche conversation, like, oh man, getting old sucks. Like this conversation really kind of gets under my skin, not because I'm old by some people's standards. I'm 51, which is definitely old in cycling world. Uh, cycling's a fiercely ageist sport I've noticed, but I just don't like that conversation because I see myself as a constantly evolving organism and I'm so much smarter now than I was. And I don't mean smarter intellectually. I mean, smarter in terms of my daily practice. Like how am I applying techniques and methods that can help enhance my health? And my health is light years ahead of where it was in so many ways when I was 20 or 25 or 30. And granted, my cells were more robust than my connective tissue was probably springier. And, you know, I certainly had, uh, probably more youthful rejuvenative ability on my side in some ways, but I've in my estimate, I've more than offset that now by a daily practice of better sleep hygiene, time in the sauna, time outside in sun in the morning, uh, breath work, meditation, qigong, tai chi, better diet, which all, all those practices really lead to a clearer mental space, right? Uh, sweeping the doorstep in my own internal environment. And when I'm not when I, when I undergo those practices regularly, for me, it means that I can have a clear headspace, but also a clear emotional space, right? Emotion in the, from the lens of Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine, emotions are housed in the organs. And so when people aren't making time to be still or be with themselves and process emotion, sit in emotion, um, Jung would say holding the attention to the opposites or 
you might even say sit in the cauldron a bit, like just feel the feelings. When people tend to not do that, then those feelings just ruminate. They sort of cruise around in your, in your bowels. <laughs> and if you do that for many, many years, the old saying goes, you know, feelings buried alive, never, never die. Uh, you can manifest challenges for yourself and you manifest layers of, of personality, layers of challenge, layers of events in our lives, trauma. And then that I think leads us into this outcome of this modern person that can then be reactive, right? Then you end up in a parking lot and someone takes your, your parking spot and you just lose it on them or whatever example we can think of. Right. Well, it's interesting you say that. Cause I think number one, I think this is a something cause when I get cases that I not necessarily can't solve, but when I got tricky stuff, you know, like sometimes there's just stuff that you look at, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And you, one of those questions is like, have you ever had anything super traumatic happen to you? You know, is anything, I know Steve Hogg, when he interviews, often brings questions in about impacts and hits and, you know, knocks to the head, concussions, things like this, that, that would affect the body. I kind of think about it on that emotional term, like you were talking about. And, and if something has happened, if someone hasn't dealt with that well, and it's very easy to do that, like, especially in the, our lives today, having trauma and then trying to, you know, go to work and get on your phone and take your kids to school. And like, it doesn't quite, grieving doesn't happen very well that way. And that, that can be a big one. So with any kind of trauma, again, as you know, like if someone says something to you and you recoil, you get that, it's an emotional response to a verbal thing. It's not even real. Those words are just floating through air and yet your muscular tissue. And again, like you say, your organs have this ability to sort of suck that up. Right. So mm -hmm. in a weird way, you can look at someone and it can be dropping a hip or they can be doing something and all the signs of mobility and symmetry are there but you know there's just something going on and, and i often sort of try to help people not necessarily oh you got to go get counseling and deal with this so you're never going to sit on a bike straight but do you I, realize that this is connected and that there could be something here for you and i know your, your hips always bugging you like it's not just the bike it's every day in the office when you're sitting you know i'm going to mm -hmm. give you some ideas you can watch colby's stretches and yeah, check out the youtube <laughs> videos but you know at the same time like if you got baggage or you've got trauma or we've got something in there then that really can affect the body and again i think it's these little tiny details that take a long time like you say as you get older you get better at picking this stuff up and also better able to bring it up with people so yeah i really appreciate that and yeah the whole parking lot idea and sort of having that that tension is just i mean we see it sadly all over the world with overreaction and all sorts of different things you know whether it's tariffs from one country to another or you know, just how we treat our neighbors, right? Like it's pretty brutal. Um, so I feel like the message that you give um, also in your podcast pretty regularly, just about being kind, you know, keeping it really basic. If we all treated the next person beside us really well, then that chain would kind of come back to us, right? Eventually. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that those simple things can, again, sort of help you when it comes to your Tai Chi and when it comes to your yoga or your stretching or whatever it is you do. And, and generally speaking, I think it's easier to just let go and know that spending time doing that is the important thing and not that you're not doing work or you're not, you know, sort of trying to make more money or you're not riding more or whatever it is. So there's that nice balance when you kind of, when you're able to, to get through that stuff and then let the body open up. And I think as a flexible person, you actually have a more flexible mind or it might be the other way around um, yeah. in that case. And it's, yeah, it's, it's really quite obvious. And again, I, I, I thread these things through the things I talk about during my bike fits and try to help people understand that and bring that together. Um, and I think it's a little bit empowering for some people if they've never heard that kind of rhetoric or talk or um, conversation before, you know? So it's pretty, yeah. 
it's pretty cool. And everybody's different stuff. That's the other challenging thing about this job. It's, like, it's never just A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, we're done. It's always like A, maybe we do a G, yeah, right. let's do a Y. You know, like you're kind of yeah. trying to pull different things for different personalities. And yeah, but again, I think that that's where your experience with Paul and, um, you know, Steve and, you know, probably all your coaching and just all your experiences, that's, you know, that's what it breaks down to. So again, getting old, sort of like your client might have said sucks, but at the same time, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I don't find <laughs> too stressful. I'm about 43 now, so I'm a little bit, little bit younger, but definitely um, I don't think I could keep up on the gravel bike. I think I'd be pitching my tent sort of halfway through the day and <laughs> maybe waiting for the next morning to finish the ride. But um, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty good. But do you, do you find that that sort of helps in your practice? Like, are you mostly focusing on the fitting stuff and that now with, with, you know, sort of working with Paul's stuff or do you find that the YouTube podcast sort of celebrity thing is taking over a little bit? <laughs> I don't know about celebrity. That's, um, Oh, in my world, you're, you're <laughs> seriously, it was honestly for many, 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 many years, everybody spoke about Steve Hogg. Everything mm. was about, read what Steve said, did you do this? Other people would make things happen and maybe invent something or talk about it. But Steve was the, the point of reference for a long, long, long time. And I think that the, the guard is changing, Colby. I think that a lot of people are looking towards you for help, for inspiration. Um, mm. I know one of my clients put me onto your podcast. I had no idea you're doing a podcast. And then okay. the next morning, I'm pedaling along on my rollers, listening to this stuff. And you're like, yeah, you should probably not sit on the wind trainer and maybe get on the rollers and put a mirror. And I'm looking at these two massive mirrors in front of me going, yeah, this is cool. I like this guy. So it was, it was, and then from then, I just ate it up, right? So it's quite cool. But I really, yeah. So sorry, I meant to sort of go back to my question about your sort of integration, I guess, of that body work and, and how you, because I know you're sort of thinking maybe you need to add more. Maybe we need to spend more time with people and give them a better list and a better like routine. Like, is that kind of what you're thinking is the future of, of the, the fitting is really like, like looking after someone's basic needs as much as their position? Yeah, that's a, a that's an excellent question. And it brings me to an ongoing conversation I've had on email with Gary Kirk since we did our episode. Okay. And I don't think Gary will mind me telling, telling the audience and you about this at all, but we've been talking about the tension between that exact paradigm. Like you look at someone and you see them and you estimate, okay, they're having, they come to you with these challenges. They walk through the door with these challenges and everybody's unique. This is the single most important les lesson that Steve brought me when I went to train with him was the only rule in bike fitting is there are no rules in bike fitting. Everybody who walks that door is completely individual. And the second you think you've got it figured out, you You've got some formula, you know, oh, if this person has a left hip drop. And if I add this wedge and this footbed and then, you know, jump up and down three times and turn around in a circle and tap them on the forehead, then we fix it or whatever. The second you think you've got that formula, you'll have eight people that walk through your door that that doesn't work for at all. And you have to go back to the drawing board. But that individuality dominates everything. So someone walks through your door, they've got their challenge, they've got their hip drop or their back pain or their knee pain or their saddle sores or whatever. And you're, you're looking at them and you're saying, okay, for me, my, 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 the way my mind works is I categorize the responsibility for that injury. And there's some percentage of 100%, some percentage of it will be the biomechanical touch points on the bike, saddle pedals, you know, cleats, shoes, footbeds, handlebars, and the relationship between those touch points. That's bears some responsibility, some percentage of responsibility for their outcome. And then the other percentage of that responsibility is their biological function. 
which is dictated by a whole series of events, which we can synopsize with Paul Cech's totem pole model, right? As an example. And this is really just, a, a, it's really a, a symbol for the human body. And at the bottom, we have the slave joints, we have the knees and the pelvis and the ankles and whatnot. And then we have the viscera, and then we go up the chain to the vestibular system and the ocular system. And then at the top is the psyche. And this entire system represents the model for the outcome of what's happening in the body. And what I think most fitters and most people are at the level of looking at biomechanically first. So someone's got chronic back pain and they come to you. And if they have a really elementary understanding of bike fitting or the work you do, they might think, well, Aaron's going to adjust my saddle height and he's going to move my cleats and that'll fix my back pain that I've had for five years. And 98% of the time that is not nearly enough depth to get to back pain. Now, every once in a blue moon, you have someone who comes in who's got back pain. Like I had a woman who came in, this is the only example I can think of in however many years I've been fitting. A woman came in, she's like, my knee hurts like crazy. I don't know what's going on. And I did all this work and looked at her mobility and stretching and, you know, hip, hip mobility and hip drop and pelvic alignment and all these things. And then we got her on the bike and I went, that's weird. And I looked at her cleats and one of her cleats had rotated like 45 degrees because she hadn't tightened it enough. And it was just, you know, not even in the right zip code. I went, oh, okay. Straightened out her cleat. She was like, wow, that feels so much better. You know, and unfortunately in her case, probably could have sent her out the door in four minutes had I started looking there, but that's not, that's very unusual. So yeah, that was a magic bullet scenario, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. So I fixed yeah. her cleat and she's fine. But that's one in a, in a thousand, maybe one yeah. in 10,000 that you have it that easy. Like 99% of all other cases were into the, the physiology of the rider, but not just the biomechanical physiology, not just the physical outcome. We're talking about the psyche and how it trickles down into their, the manifestation of their physical presence. Yeah. And again, everybody, I think everybody picks up on that differently. Like mo a lot of people, well, let's say a lot of people do have language to have that conversation, but some people don't. So you get people that don't even, yep. they don't even know what psyche or egos or, or self or, you know what I mean? It's a really different type of person that maybe a new soul on the planet, for example. Mm -hmm. And then it changes, right? And then it does become a little bit more biomechanical and a little bit less about that. And for whatever reason, because that's their language and that's what they feel and know, oftentimes that becomes the right thing to do. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you, you don't necessarily need to go into it too deep. You can make mental notes about what you're thinking and write that yeah. down afterwards. But also, yeah, you just kind of stick to what they know. And at the end, they think you've just moved their cleats around. But what you've done is you've introduced a whole bunch of mobility work by, um, you know, sort of giving them your videos. Or again, I, I do um, give few books i like to point people again to kit to kit's work down in camera there because i think he's got a lot of good content like i think you've mentioned before um it really does and, yeah and you don't need to talk about their their any anything higher level you know what i mean and, and that person will still get the same benefit hopefully in the end but the conversation's different to get there so i think that that's a real art in this game because it's not a lot of jobs that you sit down and spend four and a half hours or five hours with people one-on-one -on -one and you've never met before too right like so this is it's a really interesting kind of game that way so again you know when i when i start that interview is really important like people think you're asking them questions but i'm just getting the feel i want to see how they sit I want to see if yep. they squirm around if they make eye contact if they um you know sort of just how that how how they're how they're working through and then by the end of it you feel like you've made a friend you know which is kind of cool at the same time it, it does have to be pretty blunt and honest and you have to do a good job and 
always check your nuts and bolts and like there's some pretty serious stuff going on there but at the end of the day like i say it's it's nice to have that feeling that you've got to know someone well enough that you're able to explain you know why they're dropping a hip or why that shoulder is really sore or you know what could be going on in that sort of right hand so as right under the liver you know there's things happening in there all, all sorts of interesting stuff right i think one of your guests was sort of mentioned that that so as liver connection you know, my average client coming from the Northern beaches, um, they're wonderful people, but you know, it's, it's a fun place to live. A lot of people work in big, big offices and towers and, and, you know, have a nice drink at lunch and, you know, these kind of things. And it, honestly, that lifestyle is hard. So you're sitting at a desk and then you're trying to ride a bike hundred K on the weekend. So yep. yeah, it's, it's just interesting sort of how those, those things connected, how you can bring them across to people and make them understand it. And again, it's just the same with anything. Like someone could have really, really terribly fitting shoes but you can tell they're not in for the day to spend big bucks and they, they got to deal with the shoes and like how do you bring that right do you sell something right it's not like you're trying to shove parts down people's throat but you need to connect with them in a way that they understand that they do need new shoes and this is going to help their cycling and um yeah i just find that challenge pretty good it's 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 interesting but again it gets tiring i think um you know after after a job or two each day like i'm i'm absolutely cooked you know like i've given all my emotional energy away and it, it becomes a little bit difficult with family sometimes mm -hmm. and, you know that's where i'm lucky if i get a break in the day i'll do a little power nap so i'll lay down on the bed after lunch and then turn the um alarm on for 25 minutes or something and honestly like my next session's so good it's so much better than if i'd gone downstairs and tried to write one extra email or done one little more job um mm -hmm. so yeah rather than movement it's almost opposite it's like stillness right <laughs> stop yes moving bringing balance yeah yeah because i think when i work i tend to bounce around a lot i've never worn shoes so i've always had barefoot in the studio because it's quite warm in sydney um and yeah like i i'm always squatting i'm on my knees i'm jumping up i'm doing you know like i'm moving so yep. dynamically when i measure bikes my arms are stretched out for the wheelbase i'm stretching for the saddle and i show mm -hmm. people that they look like you look at me like i'm not sitting at a desk you know this is a really healthy way to be can you can we squat and you try to get someone to squat and it's just you know this atrocious thing so you get the heels up trying to get them down and show them what it feels like and they go oh, i've never felt my hips like that before and it's like well on a bike like these are the kind of movements that we need to be able to do with ease to make sure that things stay you know working smoothly and and stuff and you just give them ideas and so i find that yeah that's sort of how i integrate that that side of things but i've never had much training and i feel like i'd like to do something like go see kit or just add add some more stuff to the repertoire because it is you know after seeing steve i thought i knew everything and then all of a sudden i realized that it was just the beginning you know like now yeah. i don't know do you do a lot of muscle testing will you do a lot of the fatigue work muscle fatigue with the you know lock the arm and hold the shoulder and stuff like that or do you tend to sort of do what's your sort of protocol yeah. like when it's a tricky one like when you really need to just ask the person you know do you have a shorter leg does this does this correct your pelvis here does this you know like what do you do mm. great question so well, I want to reverse just for a second and talk more about that Gary Kirk conversation and that pertains to all of this and your question now, which is there's this tension between, as you said, when you, when you interview the client, you're asking them questions, but you're also observing the way they sit, the way they shuffle, the way they make eye contact or don't, you know, how they carry their head, you know, is one year higher, et cetera. You're, you're observing all these things and, and you're observing with the left brain, but you're feeling also with the gut, you're feeling with the heart, Right. And just yesterday I did a, a fit session with a client. It was about five hours and took about two hours before he opened up to me and told me that he was a former addict. 
and that he had been sober for 10 years. Didn't mention the substance. I didn't ask. That's okay. It doesn't really matter, to be honest. But it was pretty obvious that he'd experienced some pretty serious trauma. And this is a perfect example. It's like, hmm, okay. Because for the first hour and a half, I'm watching this guy and I'm listening to him and I'm picking up these little bits of language he's using and I'm watching how I was riding the bike and I'm trying to put it together. I'm going, there's something here that I don't know yet for sure. Why are we, why are we manifesting our cycling in this way? And why is our cycling practice this way? And what he spoke about that really impacted me was that he loved climbing, but he was terrified to go downhill. And so he hadn't been climbing much, even though he had recently moved to Colorado, which, you know, for people who don't know, like Colorado is literally at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. So if you look west, it's 40K climbs and serpentine roads. And if you look east, it's flat as a pancake all the way out to Kansas to Unbound. It's just a weird topography. And people come here and they they say funny things to us who are Colorado natives. They're like, oh, I got lost. It's like, you can't get lost here because you can see for 150 miles in every direction and the mountains are always west. So it's impossible to get lost really in theory, but I knew I grew up here, so... Uh, whereas in the East coast, you can get buried in the tree of Sydney. You can get so lost in that place. Like that place messes up my compass. I remember doing rides there after working with Steve and getting so lost <laughs> and I'm usually pretty good about it, but you know, toilet goes the wrong way down the drain there too. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not from that hemisphere, but anyway, uh, totally off topic there. But I, I feel like what Gary and I were speaking about in our, in our ongoing email conversations, we've been talking about meeting the client where they're at and really feeling where they're at and sort of you have to really gently um, feel, almost poke and sort of push in different ways to sort of see how they're receptive. And and with some clients, you can go straight to the moon. You know, you can start talking about the psyche and you can start talking about how their perspective on the world, their lens, their belief systems, their their deepest life experiences now have resulted in the way they walk through the world and and their trauma and their life history impacts the way they move, impacts their nervous system, impacts how they see the the lens through which they view modern life. And, and also, of course, the outcome of cycling. I mean, how many people, how many clients do you have that come to you that are having on the verge of having a nervous breakdown because cycling is their outlet. It's their, it's not their meditation, but it's their meditative experience. It's their, it's their greatest way to cope with all the stress of their lives and they go out and they just unplug and just ride and it's such a repetitive sport that can be so um as matt walden would say one of my mentors in the check industry he would talk about the idea of a biological oscillator right which is just a repetitive activity that brings you into resonance and i think that's one of the reasons why people love running so much but then running is so people are it's far easier to get injured running than it is cycling I lasso about that with my clients in the joke mm. that, you know, you can do, you can do a five hour bike ride. You have a, have a lunch and a beer and mow the lawn, wake up the next morning, do it again. You can have a five hour run and you'll be in bed for the rest of the weekend. Right. That's it. That's for it. Most people, yep. some people have, you know, sort of unbelievable. Occasionally. Yeah. To, you know, sort of decent, like you say, springy systems in their bodies and the ability to actually absorb that kind of shock. But for a lot of people, it's, yeah, it's major. So yeah. Yeah. And that's the, so, so you and Gary are trying to sort of figure out when you say meet someone where they're at, does that mean sort of just with regards to the personality side of things, not necessarily go to where they are, but just trying mm. to get the idea. And I guess, I mean, do, do you change the interview? Do you change the timing? Do you have an interview first? Like, I know one thing that, um, that, um, 
Jerry does is he'll, he'll call people first and he'll be like, yeah. okay, you're, you're about to go to the moon, man. Like, this is going to be the craziest bike that you've ever had. You know, this is just <laughs> going to be wild and we're going to do all sorts of fun stuff. Are you ready? And the guy's right. like, yeah, well, let's do it. So I find that that, that is, um, yeah, maybe a way you could, you could just, just kick the door down a little bit just so people hear your voice. Because I think that you have, um, you know, a good way of speaking. And I think that that could be a nice introduction, you know, to, to mm-hmm. just, like you say, to almost get people ready to come to that level before they get there. Because a lot of times it's a surprise, right? If someone's at the top of the drive coming down to the studio and it's like, oh, who's this, you know, and you just, it's, it's like game on. So if you make that contact before, then it's like, oh, there's that little familiarity that is a little bit of the barrier down already. So you can kind of get started on a, on a, on a, you know, a foot that's a little bit ahead maybe. So that's interesting. Yeah. It's for me, there's a tension between wanting to offer all these tools, you know, we'll say the complete spectrum of the totem pole as a, as a model Mm. and then seeing where the client is at, meaning feeling sort of what they're receptive to and what is going to be too challenging to their belief systems. Because if there's someone who's looking at you as a more traditional bike fit and you've done your best to give them those breadcrumbs and you're, I've got the podcast out and yeah. I've got YouTube videos out and I've got my content and I send them an email in advance. And it's like, Hey, here's some preparation. Here's some ideas of what I, you might expect, but maybe they're too busy or they can't hear it. You know, sometimes you look someone right in the eye and you tell them exactly what they need to hear. And it just goes in one ear hole and out the other. And, and that's okay. You know, that's okay. It's like, I'm not, I'm not here to, to tell anyone how to be, I'm not here to tell anyone how they should be. I don't, as I've heard other people say, you know, I'm not here to should all over someone. Right. But I am here to be a mirror and reflect what I see. Mm, and I'm also here to put it right. And I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm here to also give you my opinion of, of what I think is in your highest good. How can you express your highest potential? And I'll be honest in that opinion, but some people can only handle so much honesty. And so yep. your job, what I'm doing when I'm working with someone during the initial interview and the fit and the whole time is I'm feeling where they're at and how much honesty they can handle. And I, I give them, I drip feed it at the right moment. But my job is to be, when I'm sweeping my own doorstep and I'm doing my own meditation or, or surfing, right? One of the most beautiful activities you can do. I mean, there's, I, like, there's one thing I could wish for myself in Colorado would be poof, have an ocean because you're in resonance with nature and you're in resonance with the ultimate biological oscillator. I mean, let's, let's call it like it is. We all came from the ocean. We're all salty bags of water. And when we came from the ocean, we took some ocean with us. Now I live in Colorado. It's a long way from the ocean. So that's where my, my path has led me for various different reasons. My mom moved here and my, you know, just like most people in the U S not all, certainly, but many, we came from mainland Europe and came over and did all the horrible things we did to the natives here. And now here, here I am. And it's like, but I'm a long way from my origin from a biological sense uh, so to return to the ocean is something very primal, I would argue. So anyway, beautiful meditative activity you have access to there, but, and upper body work as well. I find that like balance any, work, any little right? niggles in my legs or anything going on, yeah, and it's, it's just lovely to get in the water. Cause you start using your chest, your, your, you, you know, you pull your scapula back towards your, your butt. You, you do that upwards cobra pose on the, on the board, um, unconsciously yep. just to get out and to paddle out. And, um, I think that, I think it was I'm just trying to think if it was Cruz or not, but Jack Cruz talks a lot about that primal situation and the circadian rhythm of, of things like the ocean and also the mountains. You have to remember there's many, many tribes that, that lived, you know, sort of 
where you do not necessarily in the mm -hmm. mountains because it would have been mm -hmm. bloody cold but like in australia we have this tradition of the aboriginals going up into the mountains into these large caves and scooping the bogong moths off the walls mm -hmm. and then toasting them and they would come from all different parts of of you know sort of new south wales and and um, maybe even as far as queensland down to the snowy mountains to to eat these moths and to fatten up for winter um so yeah just i i don't don't sell yourself too short on the mountains like i i, I gotta drive seven hours to do backcountry skiing where i can basically ride my bike to mm. 2223 meters at the top of mount kosciuszko right like there's it's okay. it's um completely different world so enjoy it while you have it and if you did want to make a change squamish is pretty special um vancouver island where i come from a lot of my buddies moved up to cumberland and they sit in the middle of the island so they can go to tofino and surf they can go ski mount aerosmith or Comox Glacier, they got the, you know, the ocean on the other side that's very calm um, in the Strait of Georgia. So it's yeah, that that island, like I grew up there, was was pretty special. So, but I do, I do, I do see that. And I, I think that that's wrong in the city, man. Like I think I hear people, a lot of my clients come from Singapore. Um, it's a real financial hub, plus I got some people that travel, but like they talk about this island where there's nothing but buildings. Like it's absolutely good. There's yeah. one national park, like there's one park. And I think about Jack Cruz talking about sunlight and I think about circadian rhythms. And I think about all these things that I just, there's no freaking way you can even feel the earth in a place like that. Like I just, I've heard anybody that lives in Singapore. I, I, I really, I it must be wonderful. The people are probably gorgeous, but I just, for me, it doesn't click. Like I need to be, you know, on the ground. I need to see the horizon using, you know, sort of plants and trees as my, as my sort of guide. And again, the ocean and things like this all make a huge difference. So it's, it's interesting that, you, you know, your clients would be different in the sense that a lot of them would be, I'm not sure how big it is. And it's Boulder, right? You're in Boulder? Yeah. 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 So I don't know how, how big that is, but Sydney's nuts. Like you said, it's, it's an urban but jungle and it's, hey, it's nuts. it takes me an hour and a half just to get out of the subdivisions to get, getting down to the mountains or to go see Stephen Canberra or whatever. It's, it's oh, literally yeah. an hour and a half of tunnels and freeways and yeah. craziness. So yeah, I so I think it, that, that's important. I, I rented an apartment in Piermont when I was there training with Steve because he was in city back then. Yep. And I rode, I just rode my bike. He picked me up at the airport, dropped me off at the apartment. I rode my bike to and from his place there every day. So it was like, if I remember right, it was about a 25 minute commute or something when I kind of figured out the best way to do it. And every day I would get to his office and just be like, wow, this place is such an angry business. <laughs> like yeah. just so many cars and so many people in a hurry. And it's just like every other city in the it's world. Not I'm not bashing on Sydney. Like, People do no. drive nicely here. I mean, it's a city. On it. Everybody's in a hurry and they're all battling each other to get through the arteries and veins of their life, right? And and I I couldn't agree more. Like I would just wilt and die in a place like that. And I'm such a boulder, hippie, sunshine child. You know, this town's yeah. about 140,000 when the students are in town. We've got a huge university here, University of Colorado. Yeah. Makes but it fun. When they're it's gone in the summer. It makes it yeah. fun. It, it gives it a youthful vibe. Then again, we have to put up with football games and the kids doing donuts up and down my street. So there's that. But you know, I'm I am 51, so I can I can be that guy who walks out in my my pajamas in the morning. He's like, get off my lawn. But <laughs> um, I don't do that that often. But I do go to the window, and my wife and I have this ongoing joke from this old Saturday Night Live skit. Like, what are those boys doing? You know. <laughs> but um. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm such a hippie sunshine child and I do receive what you're saying about being near the mountains. I did grow up in the mountains. I grew up on top of a local mountain here called Lee Hill and, and I can run around in the forest all day long and be so happy. And it's just, uh, such a blessing. I can walk for about seven minutes and be on a trail to go hiking or running. So I'm really blessed in that sense. Um, yeah, but uh, 
So I think to go back to your question again, or to get us back on the the main river there, the main artery, you were asking about doing a lot of muscle testing. And that was certainly one of my biggest takeaways from Steve. I had some experience with that going into his training. My wife had done a lot of work in that, we'll say, area in her own studies. And so it wasn't completely alien to me. And I think that was one of the reasons that I went to Steve's and it just flowed. And I was like, oh, you know, he showed me the first time and kind of looked at me for my response. And I think he's had some people, some clients and probably some fit candidates as well, whose jaw hit the floor when he started doing that stuff. Like what this is from Mars. I don't know what you're doing. And to me, it was like, okay, I get it. Yeah. And it made perfect sense. That said, I don't use that a lot in my fitting now. I'm, I find that I'm more, I'm feeling and, and, you know, Steve talks about this evolution as well. It's like, the, the gateway drug into that world, potentially one avenue, there are lots of ways to get there is to start to use touch and contact and, and use muscle response testing to quantify whatever you want to quantify, whether it's, you know, if someone's helmet is freaking out their nervous system or their wedging combination or their, you know, their saddle or their position or whatever you want to use. And mm. I, I think one of the reasons that I've adopted the perspective that I have is even from the very beginning of coaching my first moments where I began to have the idea that I could coach other people, which was of course began with coaching myself. I always thought at first, were you a coach before a fitter Colby? Yeah. 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 I started officially coaching in about 2005. Okay. Um, I took a job at USA cycling as the track endurance coach. That was the, the beginning. That was your year of the the world record. That was your hour record year, wasn't it? 2000? No, uh, no, 95, I set the U.S. record. Oh, okay. And then later I set a master's hour. That was a lot later. Okay, okay. It's yeah. 17 or something like that. Yeah. Okay, okay, much later. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, 2005 is when we had Worlds, Track Worlds in L.A. They just opened the Los Angeles Velodrome, and we had Ooh. Track World Championships there, so that was pretty cool. But we, I've always had a perspective that, okay, a coach is writing an athlete these intervals and he he is convinced that the rider needs a higher VO2 or whatever. So he gives them what he thinks are the best intervals for that, you know, four by five or maximum or seven by three minutes, three minutes on, three minutes off or whatever he's giving them or, or Tabatas. And the coach is writing these intervals and then he awaits this result from this interval work, right? This, this intervention, which is a specific set of, it's a specific load on the bike and i'm looking at this model thinking this is way too simplistic because if the rider is doing the intervals one day and he gets up and eats three eggs and an avocado and then goes and does vo2 work and another day he gets up and eats oatmeal we're gonna have different results and that's one of about 99 things i can even think of they're going to impact that rider's the outcome of that intervention that training intervention and this is my big arm wrestling match with people who worship the altar of science like yeah. And, and training is a black box problem. I had this debate with Sebastian Weber on my podcast, uh, I don't know how many episodes it was ago. And and I was describing to Sebastian that I, I really perceive training as being a black box problem in the sense that we give an intervention, a set of intervals or a long ride or a rest day or whatever we give or gym work. And then out the other side, we get this result, you know, an increase in threshold power or a decrease in threshold power, an increase in VLA max or whatever metric you're tracking or 15 metrics if you're tracking them. And we assume that the lever we're pushing give us, gives us that result. But the biological system is so infinitely fractally complex, so much more complex than most people 
account for. Just as the same lesson that I learned from Steve, as humans, we have we consistently underestimate the amount of bio individuality that each of us has. And you'll know this quickly as a fitter. Like one person comes into this fifth studio and the deeper you dig, the more individuality you find. It's just, there's a, there's a parallel outcome there. The deeper you dig, the more weird stuff you find because humans are, we're each our own unique expressions of God is the way I think about it. Like, and we're so unique and individual in the, in the outcome, everything we do in our worlds presents as this individual point of light. We are not a drop in the ocean. We are the ocean in a drop. And so when we're thinking about how to work with a person and optimize their function, we cannot discount that individuality. And so for me, when I'm coaching or fitting, I'm always looking at the biggest possible picture and trying to integrate that. And really, I felt like I had that instinct from the beginning 30 years ago now I'm simply trying to assemble more and more tools so that when I see that individual picture or really more accurately feel it, I can distill what the most significant aspects of that big picture are so that I can best serve the client in that moment. Like right. you always have to distill. That's the endless task of the fitter because you have like, I know there are probably some people on this podcast who are like, you guys do bike fitting that takes five hours. What's wrong with you? I've, I've read several inter interviews with other fitters, um, for a while, there was that bike fit podcast that that guy Damien did. Jerry was on it. Maybe oh. you heard it. Yes, I did. I like, yep, 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 yep. And we had, I don't remember who went on there as one of the fitters he had. And and he came on, he said, oh, if you're doing a fit, that's more than, you know, an hour and a half, you're going to lose the client. I'm like, mm. well, that's not an inaccurate statement. You know, there's evidence to show that the ultradian rhythm shifts from one hemisphere to the other about every 45 minutes throughout the day. So we have hemispheric dominance on one side and then around 45 minutes later, we get a natural shift of rhythm. This isn't just another biological oscillator it just goes back and forth, right? So he's not wrong, but on the other hand, I can't do shit with someone in 45 minutes if I'm really talking about actually serving them, right? Mm. Now I could drip feed them 45 minute sessions over five weeks, mm. but we might as well just land the plane and get some yeah, work you gotta, done. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta get right? the job done. You gotta get yeah. them on, on board. And that way, yeah. that's the interesting part. I love seeing previous clients, like mm -hmm. I love seeing people come back with new bikes and TT bikes and mountain bikes or whatever, because you've got this connection. And I, I think it's interesting you mentioning that, that hemispherical change, because if you're with someone for long enough, like potentially your brains do it at the same time, you know, like potentially there's a yes. change in the wind or this, the shadow crosses the room differently. And all of a sudden, both of you at the same time switch hemispheres. And now we're talking technical again. Okay, let's Let's just uh, drop a plumb bob for fun now and see what it actually looks like. Let's measure something. What's the difference between where it was? Like, how's this feeling? How's this working? And then the other side of it, you know, you're oh, you know, are you getting enough minerals in your water? Like, how how's your how's your sex life? You know, or whatever yeah. it is, trying to yeah. get stuff sort of out of people that way. So that's a really interesting concept. I I didn't I have never heard that before. So it's mm. something that again I I kind of I see it and I see maybe how it happens through a job. Um, and then also, yeah, now I can kind of relate to the fact that there is a, a 45 minute or 50 or whatever it is sort of change through there. Cause yep. that's really interesting. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Mm. Fascinating. So you're, yeah, so that's, that's, um, that's cool. So what do you, in, what, what do you think, Gary, what do you think the solution is there? You got, do you, do you change a protocol? Like I was saying before, you know, fitting it, it, it it's not necessarily all gut. Like you, you got to have that process, you know, even if that is using your gut, you know, you still have to have that, that process to go through. Yes. 
Um, and so is that something you would change? Like, do you think that you would sort of see a client one day and then say, look, we got to follow up here and we're going to do this then, and then we're going to intervene here and make more changes and you have to get coached or like, what's the, what's the outcome you guys are thinking? You're thinking some kind of interesting change or that's such an intricate problem and I'm, and I'm constantly refining and refining my own method to try to make my distillation process so much better. And, and for me, that comes down to the actual the cue sheet, the spreadsheet that I'm using during my fit studio work so that I can make sure I'm on that task. So I have that method. It's like, we have to make sure these boxes are checked. Yes. And I have admittedly gotten to fits where I've gotten home and looked at my notes and began to, I send the client a comprehensive package after their fit. And it's got uh, a word document that's like 13 chapters on everything from adaptation to the fit to how to replicate your own cleat position. You know, I'm trying to teach them and give them as many tools as they can have so that if they want them, they have them. I want them to be, you know, there's a bit of a paradox there. Like I actually don't want people to be dependent on me for downstream income. <laughs> I want them to graduate. I want them, you know, like, um, it's like, uh, um, sorry, I'm forgetting the woman's name right now. I've been listening to her podcast recently. Uh, it'll come to me in a second. Mm-hmm. Joanne Avison. She says, I actually don't want you on my table. If you're coming back to my table, it means I'm not doing my job because I'm not, I'm not healing you, right? I'm not giving you the tools to heal yourself and I'm not do, I'm not moving the dial for you. It's the opposite of sort of an old school chiropractic method, which is like, bang them in every 15 minutes, crack the neck, crack the back, get them out, get their $80 and send them out the door and week. have them come back every two weeks for the, yeah. for the dawn since the, uh, for eternity. It's the opposite way of thinking. So when I distill my process and continually refine to the point where I can deliver what I'm doing fundamentally is I'm, I'm delivering the, the athlete, something actionable that pushes their envelope. But the key is to meet them on this. If we use a one to hundred spectrum or a scale just to put a number on it and to help conceptualize it for people, for the audience and for myself, if I'm, if 100 would be everything I could possibly offer that client all the way to maximum, right? Talking like they understand and and embrace the entire totem pole totem pole model. Yeah. And, you know, they understand and are willing to accept the fact that I pulled a tarot card this morning and connected with their soul before I went into the fit section. <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe don't tell them that. <laughs> but I guess if you're open to everything, that's the point. Yeah, yeah that's called yeah. pole. So that's the top of the pole, right? It's like, okay, what, what do we, what level are we really working at here? But most clients are going to be some percentage less of that. And maybe you have a client who comes in at 12 and this is the conversation Gary and I were having the other day. He's like, what do I do with that? Because there's a side of you that can be quite frustrated with that. It's like, man, I'm trying to do this work where I'm looking at the whole pole and you tell me that you prefer to drink seven up instead of water. It's like, wow. Okay. But what I... I reflected on this a lot and I just wrote this email to Gary the other day. And I'm again, I'll, I'll, I'm making an assumption on Gary's okay with me disclosing this. I'm talking more about my side of it, but really what I was saying to him is we have to let go of where they are on that scale. It doesn't really matter if they're a 12 or a 24 or an 84 or a 99. It doesn't matter. The job is the same, Like mm. it would only matter if my attachment was, well, I only want to work with clients that are an 88 or higher because I have an idea in my head that when there is a beautiful moment, when someone walks in the door and they mostly get what you are already here to present, the conversation can go so fast and it can be so advanced. And there's real joy in that. It's like this person gets it, man. They're already drinking mineral rich water and they're already walking barefoot and they already understand that 
a rigid footbed would make their feet and ankles weaker and make them less stable. They already understand and they've been listening to my pods or someone else's pods or Jack Cruz or whoever. Mm. And they get I love, it. I love Uncle Jack. I'm, <laughs> I'm all over that stuff, so man. Many good, he, he gets so many good lessons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and he's so, so it's, yeah, it just, I just wanted to make really clear that he knows yeah. not everything, but the way he can talk about the human biological system is mm. absolutely, I've never heard anybody speak like that. Like he's so clear, he gets it, he he sees it. Yeah. He cuts people's yeah. heads open and, and sees the brain activity, right? Like, yeah. And all those, sees the melanin in there. Like it's, anyway, I really, it, yeah. No, it, I agree. Um, I, The more I've dug into Jack's work, the, you have those moments where you, you find a new teacher and you're like, ooh, this guy's a full level above me or maybe mm. more. I need to dig, I need to learn. And that's right where I'm at with Jack. So- Cool. Really grateful for that uh, conversation, that passing of his his information around on our thread. So yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And also, the, I, I really, um, yeah, the, the the latest one. There's another one that he's done with another a German gentleman. That's quite, it's quite good. And I, yeah, again, I think even his work is really it's like it's holistic. You know, like it comes back to you, sort of with your fitting in the sense that like he's saying to people, like, look, look at what you're doing. Like, look at yep. what the earth is doing and try to figure out how to make those things mesh and, and get back to, to what we're supposed to be doing for our, um, you know, our, our health and well-being. And it's, it's absolutely mm. fundamental. Like we're getting so far from, you know, our natural stance and stuff that it's, it's a little bit, a little bit troubling. And again, even like you always tell people like cycling is like that, like cycling doesn't do anything for you that nature wants you to do. Like it's something that's kind of alien and we do it a lot. Right. So it's, um, yep. yeah, yep. something you can sort of think about. And well, sure that's happening. there's a, there's a beautiful conundrum in there because in the one hand cycling can connect you with nature, can bring you into more nature, but it doesn't in a way that over a long enough timeline will cause you a dissociation from your own natural function. That's how I would. Do you think that affects the totem pole? Do you think you could do like a correlation? But yeah, yeah, I, I would see a pretty, pretty clear correlation between that, the time spent in nature and circadian rhythms being clicked on properly and stuff and just going up the totem pole kind of automatically. Oh, and I guess 100%, that's 100%. Yes. Yeah. The client, like trying to help them see that. Cause that's yeah. the idea you're saying is teach them, teach them about what they can do to help themselves. They don't come back for more work. Maybe they do cause they like working with you. But at the same time, you're, yeah, just providing that holistic picture. Cause again, Sometimes you can move bikes all around and move seats up and down and cleats here and there and problems don't necessarily get solved, you know, like there's, there's something happening. Yeah. People have been to see many people or been trying to do, you know, like 10 different saddles and like, it's like, okay, <laughs> I love the saddle, you know, we, we've got to really <laughs> have down here. I've had uh, many clients in that department. That said, you go through 99% of all saddles follow one paradigm and there is a Hail Mary that can work for some people. Now it's still ultimately an accommodation right? Mm. This is really what we're talking about. Are we making real change or are we accommodating an athlete's outcome? And accommodation could have a bad ring to it. It could have a negative connotation to it. But like cycling, maybe in order to ride a bike, we do have to make several accommodations. But my idea, and this is an ideal, is to make as few accommodations as possible and really get to the essence of what the problem is. So the Hail Mary saddle is the infinity. Yes. Yeah. But the hard part is they're not easy to get. Um, no, they're not. You know, for me, it's it, that's a tough one. I, I, I just speaking of of gear, I was wondering whether we'd get into this because I've got a lot of sure. gear stories and stuff. But we just got form from the UK coming in, so I don't have to buy the form stuff on on the UK side anymore. 
And there's, um, yeah, I think there's real value in having a local supplier, especially when you're on a continent like this. Like for me, of course, if they don't want to send someone 200 saddles in Australia and just have them sit there ready to go. It's really hard to say, yeah, I can get you that saddle. Let's do it. It's more like, oh, let's see if there's stock. Oh, it'll be in in four weeks. You know, this, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, but you're right. I've, I've had a couple of scores where people call back and ask for another one. So that's, that's quite good. I'm always interested too with the, um, you know, sort of that SMP model like you have, and you really in, enjoy those. I found the SQ Lab stuff to be to be super good. And again, I think you told me when I was working with him that often it's not that the saddle, like it's just the position that can make a huge difference. You can have the best saddle in the world in the wrong spot, and it really doesn't work because the weight isn't balanced correctly. Um, yep. the legs aren't moving over the saddle and the pelvis properly, you know, it's just not, not happening. And then you can have a really crappy saddle in a really <laughs> nice position that can do a lot of really that good That can do pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that, I think that's true. It also depends a lot on the function of the rider. You know, someone who's got a nervous system that really is struggling to negotiate the activity of cycling and isn't stable and the core isn't stable and you know, this comes into first and second chakra issues, right? So to yeah. take it to the totem pole, like you can put them on the best saddle in the world in the perfect position and they're still going to have sores. They're still going to have pain, right? And if someone has pelvic trauma, right? The obvious reference being sexual trauma, but also remember first chakra stuff is all about safety, family, security. So if they have major issues, like someone can be out there riding their bike, medicating themselves on their bike with their hour and a half hard ride every, you know, three or four times a week because they hate their job. They they've been in a marriage for 18 years that they absolutely that they knew 16 years ago needed to end, but because of their Christian belief system, they think that if they get married, they get divorced, they're going to burn in hell. Like this is a real thing that happens, and we might be thinking like, "What's well, 2023? Like who thinks this way?" But these belief systems are absolutely alive and well in modern society worldwide. And I'm just I'm not picking on Christianity. That's just one easy example. Like. Mm religious belief systems permeate people's psyche and they they have a real actionable outcome on how people live their lives every single day and if you have that conflict inside you i mean think about how primal that is like you've been i'm, I'm just again i'm just making up an example someone's married for for 20 years and they knew 18 years ago that they really didn't want to be in relationship this with this man or woman and they their sex life has been on the rocks for two decades like what does that do to a person's energy what does it do? Like, you know, when you are, when you're talking about your reptile brain, it's the four F's fight, freeze, flee, or fornicate. And fornicate only comes after the first three are taken care of. If they're, mm. if you're not freezing or fighting or running mm. for your life, yeah. meaning you feel safe, you feel fed, you feel like you have a, a safe cave to hide in and, and you've mm -hmm. got water and food and your body's warm and, and you're not in pain every day, which by definition makes you young, dominant. Mm. You're not in pain, like like real pain. Then you're thinking about procreating. And if you're in a marriage, you know, you're in a marriage for two decades or three decades or whatever, even one decade. And you've got this tension inside of you because your belief system is telling you or your parents have been telling you, if you ever get divorced, I won't love you. Our love is conditional or Maybe your parents haven't told you that, but somehow you believed that, right? There's all these nuances to the psyche that can play out. And so here you can imagine a situation. This is first and second chakra issues, both of these, or this paradigm, this example I'm talking about. And what, what do we do in a bike? We sit on our first chakra. <laughs> we, 
we, yeah. we literally bear our torso weight on our first chakra, right? In Chinese medicine or in Qigong, this would be called the blood cauldron, which is like the, that, the area. That's yeah. I can imagine the blood cauldron and the blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> having a so, yeah. Yeah. And, and so we're, we're sitting on the, we're, we're participating in a sport that sort of paradoxically puts, makes us carry our psychological and physical weight on that area of our body and focuses pressure there. Think about that for a minute. And so if you have tension in that area, how is that going to be equalized? So here we are fucking around with one degree, you know, medial wedges thinking we're going to fix someone's hip drop. Mm. And when you look at it from this lens, it's like, man, this is just ice skating uphill. Like, yes, that doesn't mean we shouldn't look after wedges and footbeds. It doesn't mean that someone's shoe shouldn't fit. Obviously, it doesn't mean we shouldn't look for the right saddle. But you can also see that once if we only look at it through that biomechanical lens, unless someone really deals with the much bigger issue, the psychological issues that they're having, we're only going to make so much impact. Will you, will you use, like, I know for me, I have people I outsource certain jobs to, like I've got a leg length discrepancy x-ray dude who's a bit of a uh, gun mm. podiatrist. I've got um, local massage that I can sort of refer people to. There's, you know, sort of different people that you say, I think you'd work well with this person. Cause not that necessarily you can't handle the job, but there's more to do. And you sort of think that maybe that sort of teaching could help. Have you sent people to see others for psychological work or for, um, you know, therapy or anything like that? Like, do you go that far with the client or, or do you just like, how do you, because again, that's well, that sort of, you can see the totem pole, you know, where you're at, you know, where they're at, you know, what you yeah. could say, or maybe introduce the conversation, but like that, that can be tricky at that point. Cause like you say, especially after you've done a lot of hard work and you're not getting anywhere. You know, it can be a little yep. bit frustrating for both for both the client and 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 you as well. So, will you share sure. that, or do you, do you have you not done that yet? In in practice, uh, I have. I would say I have referred out. I mean, this is a critical thing for any coach or any bike fitter is to know your your domain of expertise and then refer out as soon as you're. Try not to be everything to all people, and I've made this mistake in the past, admittedly. Um, like I can do this, I can solve this. You know, I can understand the nuances of this person's blood work. Wait a minute, I'm not a doctor. I don't have right. Jack Cruz's experience or whatever. Like I don't know what that yeah. means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Doctor Google isn't going to get me anywhere that that this client couldn't get with their own hour of research. So we have to be really clear on our boundaries and know our yes, so that we can define our no. And and so I have referred people out for not to a psychologist specifically, but I have said to them, look, I think you've got some trauma that needs to be worked on, and and there are people in my network that I can refer them to, to help them on the journey of that healing. Uh, one of them has been for people who I think really need meditation. The, the first step for me is meditation. Cause if someone comes to you and they're again, to use our hypothetical one to a hundred example, mm -hmm. and they're in the thirties or forties or twenties, but you can see they've got trauma to heal. One of my best tools is to refer them to a colleague of mine, Michael Holt that I've had on my podcast. And Michael's a meditation teacher and a martial arts teacher. And he holds uh, some regular classes that are, they're men's group oriented. So you got to be a man to qualify for that. But he's a powerful teacher and he can begin to give you the tools to quiet the mind, to look inward and sit in the cauldron. That's the first step is, is quieting the chatter and beginning to train the mind just as we can train muscles to be fast or efficient at balancing on a surfboard or climbing a mountain on a bike or whatever, or trail running and Vibram five fingers. We can train the mind to not be such a wandering elephant and just kind of go wherever it wants to bashing through walls and stomping on stuff and sort of wandering into old 
memories and these yeah. types of things, we can train train the mind to become a little more less like a puppy and more like a well trained Doberman German Shepherd. You said about, about the mind too, because I think you've mentioned it before, where you focus your thought your and your energy like that's what you feel. So if someone's getting on the bike and they have a wandering mind and they've got pain and discomfort. That pain is yep. going to go all over the shop. It's just going to migrate through the body or it's going to become more. It's going to hurt more when you're climbing or it's going to hurt less when you're doing this just because you're, you're that's what you're thinking, you know, in, in yep. a weird way. And, and I think that's where that flow state comes comes into play. That's a real crucial mm -hmm. element to to fitting in that sense is, is that's the, the ultimate goal, you know, to get on the bike and just ride and just and not have that, you know, like you said at the end of your last gravel adventure, like your legs were sore, but you didn't hurt, you know, you didn't have mm -hmm. um, appendages, like everything was working well. And, and how did you get there? Well, you, you, you trained for it and you did a lot of body, you know, sort of mobility work and you've, you know, done your meditation and you do your movement practices and your breathing and look what, look how it came together, you know, this kind of thing. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's really cool. So, so meditation, it, it, yeah, again, cause I think that people can be a little bit confused about what that what that means you know like it's it's not sitting on facebook for half an hour on the couch quietly like well they can also yeah i think a common misperception about meditation is that you have to be some monkish uh person who can quiet their mind and if you can't quiet your mind mm -hmm. that you're doing it wrong and people then when they try to meditate i think it's a common experience for people to sort of start beating themselves up. Like, oh, I'm not doing this right. I'm doing it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the core, core teachings from Michael Holt is that, and, and also Paul, Paul would say, what does the mind do? The mind minds, meaning it thinks it, it, that's what its function is. It's to cleave, to analyze, to be, um, to walk through the world and analyze for danger, to look for hot chicks to look for sources of water, right? This is fundamentally what the mind does, but now we enculturate it and we get things like looking on Facebook for cool race cars or, you know, kitten videos or whatever you're looking for. And, and the mind minds. And so Paul would offer that during meditation, your mind will mind and that's okay. The practice of meditation and, and Michael would say the same thing is to distance yourself from that, those thought patterns, treat them like clouds that dance across the sky. And your thoughts are not you. You're separating. You're observing the thinker. This is the fundamental practice of meditation. And so when you get sucked into the world of thought during meditation, it's not that you failed. It's that you just are, your mind is doing what it was meant to do. It's like looking at a hammer and asking it to be a screwdriver. Hammers are hammers. They're not screwdrivers. They're terrible screwdrivers. And, and so we, we want to respect the fact that the mind is a mind, but we also want to not, we want to train ourselves to understand that we are not our thoughts. That's where the, that's where reactivity comes when you are so in the moment and your mind thinks something and then you invest in it and you cannot detach from it. It's really that about takes, takes a lot of energy. Takes, and I think, yeah, I think yeah. that's when of training yourself to do it is then it takes less energy, right? Then it, then it becomes easier. Yes. And I have two kids. One of them turned a uh, teenage yesterday. So we had a little birthday party, but she, and my son, um, who's, 15 at the end of the month, they, they, they test that like every single, every, you know, <laughs> really it, it pushes that. And, and I think you're right. I think that's a great way to look at it because I tend to be quite reactive, but again, I wouldn't do that in the studio. It's really weird how 
when you're at that level with someone that you love, like you just think that all of a sudden that behavior can change, which I don't, I don't think is necessarily the right way to do it. But again, this isn't, um, yeah, yeah. It's not, not about, um, sort of raising kids or trying to stay on track with bike stuff, but it is, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's all integrated into, into one thing. And, and yeah, it's interesting with clients too. Like I say, like even with the family stuff, like just actually playing on that a, a little bit, it's wonderful. Like you, you connect with someone and talk about your kids together and like how that is. And then I start to bring into like, well, where do you take them riding? Like, do you take your kids riding? It's like, no, no, not really yet. But it's like, oh, well, you know, I, when I, my family was young, we did these rail trails and they go rail. What's that all about? And you say, oh, down in Victoria. Um, so South of here, probably about 800 kilometers or 700 yeah. day, like it's not actually, it's probably a little bit less than that. It takes a while to get out there though. You got to take, it's a big trip, but they've got these like hundred kilometer rail trails from town to town to town through the mountains, along the rivers and few different places in Victoria and like our first one my daughter was on a run bike and I just think it was the most epic experience we had trailers behind my wife and my bikes we had the dog we had all the camping gear doing about 30k a day just putting down these little rail trails off the road um just having a blast and and that to me is is kind of part of it as well like that's cycling like that's bike fit in a way like that that I add that mm -hmm. and kind of riding into the rest of my cycling it's not just the road bike you know so you almost when someone comes in with a you know SL8 and that's the only bike they have and they got 28 mil tires on it and they pump them too hard and and that's yep. it it's yep. like well guess what like there's way more out there cycling is big cycling is this and i think that that introduces mm. new range of movements and again sort of pushes the psyche like how how far do you want to take this is this the only exercise you need this way can you integrate cycling in with your kids can you do it with your partner you know all these sort of types of things so yeah i see yeah i see that real holistic view now mm. much more than i did when i started when i was just trying to check the checklist on the excel model and you know yep. get the knee angle right and all these kind of things so it's, been, it's just been yeah. super yeah. awesome that way mm, you're so yeah. correct about the sl8 example uh i think one of the negative outcomes of riding a bike that where we every time we get on a bike we're clipped in mm. this propagates can propagate some really poor pedaling mechanics and it can propagate some dysfunction in our pedaling movement and specifically i can it can hyper facilitate the psoas especially if people are trying to make the pedal stroke a little more smooth and they're never on a bike with flat pedals right flat pedals can be a good antidote a really good antidote to some of those problems it can be that mm -hmm. simple it's like you are you're over over smoothifying that's not a word at all but you see what i'm getting at like People are really trying to make their pedal stroke a little too circular. And this is um, good advice, advice gone wrong. We, we probably can all find some books. I probably have some of them on my bookshelf here. Of, the trainer. The comp Yeah, trainer. the spin scan, right? Like, right? How many now people did that ruin? I started there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or here, let's see if I can find it in four seconds. It's probably right here somewhere. In the little book. Oh, okay. Juan's book is the book that probably negatively impacted positively impacted my cycling career so much when i was younger because he yeah. offered me so many basics about training and i then transferred that into my coaching but also negatively the one the the bit about scraping the mud off the bottom of the foot which led to pulling up on the back side of the stroke which that, is the so as overuse it's, and it's sort of hamstring so as yeah complex and look I'll, I'll just say it so that people are clear like i say this all the time in my fitting my opinion is the so as we can all, we can, we can broadly categorize muscles as phasic or tonic. Now all muscles have some tonic and some phasic fibers, but phasic fibers are doing fibers. They're pushing, right? 
if you walked into a parking lot and a car had rolled onto a small, ch- small child, you would use phasic fibers to lift that car up so the kid could get out from underneath it, right? There's your example. Tonic fibers are the postural stabilizing muscles or fibers in a muscle that require that are required to guide the phasic muscles. So phasic muscles are the 500 horsepower engine. Tonic fibers are the struts, the suspension, the tires, right? Mm-hmm. And they have to go together. Just like any engineer will tell you these, these, we have to have a cohesive system for the car to really be a true race car for it to go fast, accelerate quickly and have a lot of power, but also negotiate corners, undulations yeah. and terrain, stay on the road. Right. And so when someone goes into the gym and they use a leg press, they're training the engine, the phasic fibers and not the, at the expense of the tonic fibers. And by definition, if we don't train them at the same rate, then we That's get freaking injuries that we get injuries, we mm. get imbalances, or we get, we get best case scenario is you get really dysfunctional strength, meaning all, you're super strong on the leg press, but then as soon as you mm. have to lift the car off the kid, you can't do it because it's at a slightly awkward angle and your muscles aren't trained when they're not perfectly making force in the sagittal plane there. You've got, you've got these extra requirements and boom, your back slips or all whatever. Sudden, so that brings it back to the flat pedals. Brings back to the flat pedals. Yes. Yeah. So when we, when we train an athlete, we have to train them holistically and train the systems together. Right. And cycling is a sport that, I mean, I'll just break it down off the top of my head, like concentric load only, almost exclusively sagittal plane, limited range of movement, which means we get adaptive muscle shortening. Right. Mm. We also, we we're taking what is the most fundamental nervous system pattern, in my opinion. And Steve and I've had discussions about this, which is gait. Gait is the synopsis of all the primal movement patterns in Paul's system. But gait, I mean, what are what is the physical function of human beings of running and walking? What was our adaptive strategy? It was it was going from quadruped to biped. So this is inarguable. Running and walking are the most primal movements we can express. Now we can throw spears and hang from branches and squat and kick and run and and we can carry heavy objects. Those are all those are all things we do, but the 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 locus of it, the central locus of movement is running and walking. And so when you look at that movement pattern, it's so ingrained in vertebrates. I mean, this is why you cut a chicken's head off. It still runs across the yard. It doesn't even need mm-hmm. a brain attached. It's in the nervous system for yeah. it to go left, right, left, right, left, right. So when we get on a bike, of course, we're going to access the same movement engrams. We have to like there, this is also to me inarguable, but cycling screws that movement engram up so much. Why? Because in gait, you have a heel strike and a, a lateral roll to the foot and then a pronation and a dorsiflexion to the toes and a liftoff. We have deceleration, the hamstrings mm-hmm. are the brakes, and you have acceleration in, in the explosive phase of gait, right? That's why when, it, when a sprinter, when you do a slow-mo of Usain Bolt, his rear, his rear foot never hits the ground because he's accelerating for the entire event, but he can only do that for a handful of seconds. This is right. why modern cycling shoes fuck people up so much because they trap the foot in acceleration. That's yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. That and and but but the hard part is is you get the deceleration from the bottom of the crank, wouldn't you? Like, doesn't it? Wouldn't that equate to some of that change? And then the other part mm. would be: is, would you not be wasting or losing energy by trying to create that system in a cycling shoe? Like, that's the well, hard. Part. Okay, is so it, yeah, great question. Okay, so uh, two points there. This, so Steve talks about when the saddle's too high, the knee accelerates at the back of the stroke. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
And this is one of the ways we can tell the saddle's too high. So just to make sure the audience is up to speed with us, when the saddle's too high, what we see, you trace the path of the knee and it looks like an arc. And as the leg goes down the power phase, the knee is extending. So it moves back towards the seat tube. And, and then it comes back up as the foot traces from bottom dead center to top dead center, the arc re uh, retreats and the knee moves up towards the chest. And in that pattern, we can see it's not a perfect oscillator when the saddle's too high because the path of the knee descending is quicker. It accelerates and then it comes up slower and it accelerates and comes up slower. Why does that happen? This is my theory. So this is the first time I've ever said this on the pod. So I'll throw it out and you can tell me what you think. In gait, what happens first during the, as this, the heel hits the ground or the midfoot hits the ground, if you're a midfoot runner, which most people really aren't, we have that heel strike. What that tells us is proprioceptively, it tells us where the ground is in space. This is absolutely critical from a nervous system point of view. Why? Because when we went from quadruped to biped, we took massive risks, evolutionarily speaking, right? Now, nature doesn't make mistakes, as Jack would say, Dr. Cruz would say, but we took a massive risk. Why? Because we exposed our viscera to th predators, right? When I'm on all fours, I got teeth and claws, right? But yeah. now, hey, do you want to stab me here or eat me here <laughs> in the throat or the, or the belly? What do, what do you want to go for first? There's we took a huge risk. Looking. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So we also went upright and we had to develop this huge brain and massive um, amounts of energy had to go into developing our vestibular system and our ocular system. We had to scan the horizon for threats, but we also had a higher vantage point so we could look for prey more easily than an animal that's one foot off the ground. Now we're six feet off the ground. But we if we fall down, we are screwed. Right. Mm -hmm. Because we went to a much less stable base. We went from a four point base low to the ground to a two point base really high from the ground. So we could fall over more easily and we're, we're running and walking over uneven terrain. We're going through valleys and on beaches and up and down mountains to hunt our minimal footwear, like skin. If you're lucky, right? A little skin bit if of, you're lucky. So, yeah. yep. So we have to have an extremely precise proprioceptive system in the feet yep. and in the SI joints around the SI joints, right? The, yeah. the locus of, of nerve that, nerve there. And then we also have to have this perfect pathway of communication to the brain and this really powerful vestibular system that can locate us in space and make sure we don't tip over. Cause if we fall over and break a pelvis or a femur, we're a tiger snack or we're dead to the tribe yeah. and we won't survive. So all this is critical. And so what is in, sorry, um, Leonardo DiCaprio, the, the movie where he wakes up from a dream within a dream within a dream. No idea. I don't watch uh, a lot of television. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. Uh, oh, it's right on the tip of my brain. All my audience right now is screaming it into the microphone, but I can't hear them because they're in the future. It'll come to me. So there's this Leonardo DiCaprio movie about where they, they go into dreams and they dream, but then they dream within a dream within a dream. Okay. Inception is the name of the movie. Okay, it came to me. And... How do they wake up? How do you wake up when you're dreaming in this fictional account? You fall. Okay. Why do we wake up from a dream when we're falling? Because falling is one of the most immediately alarming things we can do to jolt our nervous system. Yeah. And why? Because we took this evolution. This is my whole line of thought. We took this evolutionary risk going from quadruped to biped. And in that, it was like, all right, we need to arm ourselves against falling. If we start to fall... Everything stops and immediately we try not to fall. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so when we're walking and running, what is the first point of contact? It's the heel strike. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a heel strike in cycling because, of course, the axle's near the ball of the foot, but we're pushing down. So we're getting right. these mixed signals into the nervous system because on the one hand, we're pushing and we're expecting the ground from an evolutionary standpoint, from a nervous system perspective lens, we're expecting the ground to come, but it never comes. And so when the saddle's too high yep. and the knee begins to approach hyperextension, the hamstring is like, whoa, whoa, bro. And it hits the brakes hard because we don't want the, the knee to hyperextend. But also, I this is totally conjecture theory on my part. We'll say theory. I think that's especially alarming to the nervous system to have this lack of stability under the heel because we're, we're looking for that. And so it's a, this is why cycling is such a learned behavior, because what we learn is that as we push down, we get pressure near the ball of the foot, not in the heel, but even then it's a proprioceptive dead zone because we're in this carbon fiber shoe. So there's no impact and there's very little texture and the pressure sensors have been relieved by foam and padding. And I'll say this, um, this is one thing I've learned in bike fitting and in my own physical practice, foam is fucking evil. Foams are evil. The body never, the body is not meant to experience anything like foam. Where in nature is foam? The only place I can even think of that's remotely close to foam under the foot or anywhere near the body would be walking through a swampy marsh in Florida, which you would not do for a long period of time because it's very unnatural. Maybe moss or lichen underfoot something like that right yeah foams are evil like like foam is not a good thing so the more foam we put in a bike seat the more problems we have in my experience the more foam we put under the feet the more problems we have look at a hoka what is a hoka hoka is like a train wreck under your foot Mm -hmm. the worst design ever foams are evil so avoid foam there's my rule yeah. So but, with, with regards to that, set, that, that, that comment though, like, and thinking about the proprioception. So my, in my practice, I do foot correction 100% yeah. of the time and okay. I do it both off the bike and on the bike. So I look at, and it's difficult these days because you can't stop the pedal stroke very easily with a wheel off wind trainer. So you've got to do yeah. basically bottom dead center, you know, somewhere around that zone to, to test on the bike. Mm. And I find that once I get that right and I've got float right and the person's foot feels supported and comfortable and the shoe isn't compressing and it's not sort of, you know, sort of causing any issues this way, I generally get people to do them up not too tight. And then we basically forget about it. At that point, I tell them to not even think about their feet. I don't want them to think about their feet, their shins, their knees. The only thing I want someone to focus on with proprioception and with the situation that you were talking about is you got to skip the foot. I drop the foot altogether and I try to get them to think about their glutes. I try mm. to have someone use glute max. Sometimes I'll dig my fingers in into different parts of the glutes up to glute med and, and glute min even a little bit behind and mm. hold the pelvis for them and show them and say, look, like the only thing we want to be worried about right now is thinking about driving the bike with your glutes. Because I can guarantee you, you sit in an office 45 hours a week you know, you drive your car to work and you're, we, you know, we just, we need to be able to focus on these muscles because we're not going to sit on them and squish them and make the hip flexors tight and sort of oppose, you know, cause that, that opposition. I want you to fire the glutes on the bike. And then once someone gets that fundamental connection of glutes, core, diaphragm, breath, and being able to support the body comfortably through the front end, then I, I feel like the feet are doing what they need to do 
but not necessarily contributing either to in a positive or negative way. That changes when you stand up out of the saddle. Okay. That's where I feel there's then, then we, then I would start to look at, at foot correction again and sort of wonder about your theory and, and, and sort of how that plays into it. But again, if you've got foot correction, which is supposed to be, you know, in consideration of subtalar neutral and trying to get the best signal from the foot to the brain, like what else can you do? Right. I, I don't, right. I don't, I don't think you can, I mean, you could use a, a bond with no insole. Um, even now they're curving them a lot more than they did in the past with the new 2023 shoe that they put out. Love the shoe, by the way, bond, mm. good job, but the look cleats don't fit yet. Um, you got to get it flatter. There's it's, if you, that's if always been there. a challenge with bonds speed play. Yeah. Look, same problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, you see what yeah. the, the thing is like, I just, and I, and again, when I started fitting you, I mean, it was, it was 13 years ago. I've been full 14 now. Mm -hmm. And Steve had seen a few of my customers. He said, oh, you're getting close. Like when I trained with him, he was like, yeah, I saw a few people that you worked with and you were close, but your foot correction was always off by a wedge or two, you know, kind of mm -hmm. thing. Like it was mm -hmm. this real concrete thing. And I thought like, how could this be like, what, what, what mm -hmm. we, you know, sort of learned. And when I was taught how to use the muscle testing to check this stuff, then I got quite creative with it as well. And even recently, and again, it's funny you talk about foam because Steve would half the clients that leave steve hogg's place have a have a well maybe not half i don't actually know what his statistics are like but i can tell mm. you from my experience almost half my clients will require a metatarsal post to maintain a strong muscle test in bottom dead center even with a saddle that's at a, a good height so you have these situations where maybe out of the saddle that person comes down and for whatever yep. reason the shoe is creating a bit of a lift on the big toe and the windlass mechanism doesn't operate properly like there's it's so well, again, of you, course, you because all these toes, all these shoes have a toe spring that's too high. That's exactly what it does is create that windless mechanism, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're that's, trying to, that's what they're all doing. Yeah. That it's the, the toe spring in a modern shoe is basically like a really crude orthotic and it probably worked okay back when we were using shoes that were made out of leather because the shoe would eventually form to your foot to some degree and it all flexed and moved enough to where it didn't really matter. But then we went into the carbon fiber era and everyone was like, made the same conclusion, stiffer, lighter, better. And they made everything out of carbon. And if you remember CD, although I think his shoes are, to be honest, mostly crap. He was one of the few people who figured out right away, like if we make a cycling shoe out of carbon. This is going to be a disaster. And he was right. Like carbon fiber cycling shoes that have a curved last, they're total train what wreck. What would you do for, for road racing then? If you were going to set someone up and you said, look, you've got say uh medium to high art say 30 32 mil somewhere in that zone that collapses maybe five mil so it's pretty healthy it moves yep. um no foot dysfunction no bursas no big gnarly knob sticking out just a nice you know not not overly wide or overly long or anything what would you do to create a platform that created proprioception well, through the pedal stroke for that person best case scenario so two methods one would be put them in a bont with a g8 Okay. Yeah. Because so a bond is the lowest with the suspension. Yeah. Yeah. It's the flattest shoe we have other than a lore, which I'll get to in a second, okay. <laughs> but we have a bond. that's the flattest shoe we have. It's also the most neutral platform we have, right. In terms of it's not curved up. It's not, um, yeah. laterally immediately. It's not, it doesn't have a lot of toe spring. doesn't allow a heel rise and it's got, it doesn't have as neutral of a toe box as we want, but it's one of the better ones on the market. So yeah. I'll take it. Right. I just did a video a couple weeks ago about how I butchered my bots and sawed them up with a Dremel and they're, that's what I'm using now and they work well. I would put them in that with a, with a G8. Uh, we could also do a Neboso insole with a G8 arch underneath. That would be, that's what I'm using currently. And that's my solution for exactly that problem because it gives us as close to a flat foot as we can get, but it allows the arch to be 
it allows the arch to move and some pronation and supination. So the idea that we want to lock the foot in place in a shoe is incorrect in my opinion. And there are definitely cyclists who are trained podiatrists and fitters out there who are propagating that right now. And I've been down that road and I've seen the results and not just for me, but for my clients. And if we think about it from the big enough picture perspective, we can see that all feet need to move. That's what they do. Anytime you, let's look at some basic principle, two basic principles. One, we're trying to lock the foot in place in a cycling shoe with a rigid carbon footbed, like a Cobra nine, or what's that one with the lateral posting? I always forget the name of it. Oh, soul star. God, what a bunch of garbage. Pardon me. I'm just going to say it garbage. Yeah. Right. And, and when you understand a bit about podiatry, you can see what they're doing there. It's just an, it's another form of accommodation, right? That's all it is. They're just trying to drive the first metatarsal in by lifting the fifth, which is mm -hmm. the opposite way to do it, but it actually is effective, but it's not, it's incorrect. I'll say it that way. Okay, fine. But we have all this. So we're, we have this super rigid shoe, like a bond is the ultimate example or a Hanson Hansino or something like that. Or a, there's a couple other brands that make shoes that are just, you know, trying to put your foot in a nimble, 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 nimble similar. Like yeah. yeah. So it's a bathtub carbon fiber design. The Lake CX 403 is another example. We're going to lock the foot down and then we're going to put a carbon rigid arch under. And we're going to lock it. Okay. We want the foot to not move because we want it to be a fixed lever. Look at what you're doing right now in this pod. You're standing at your desk. I've got my office chair here. Yeah. Right. Moving. We're moving. What's the rule? We're moving. Why? Yes. Because we are living expressions of life force. When, right. when in life are you actually not moving? When life ends. Not moving is death. <laughs> Right at the biggest picture, like we're always moving, we're always breathing. Even in meditation, we're breathing, so and the we're idea moving. Is that the foot needs to express that way as well. You need the, to be able the to idea is that. the foot needs to move, and that's what it was meant to do. If, especially if you take my my precept that gait is the ultimate expression of human movement. During gait, we have pronation, deceleration, and acceleration, and supination eversion and inversion. We have all these movements that happen in the foot. Now, can we yeah. have all those happen on a cycling shoe? No, we are trying to make movement in the sagittal plane. Yes. But if we try to lock the foot completely down, we're just asking for a shit storm. So my ultimate solution is the lower shoe, which is actually coming to life slowly, way more slower than I ever wanted the, the world's slowest timeline. And I'll, I'll be really direct about it. Um, I think Stefan is an awesome guy and the team at lore is doing an amazing job, but they've been moving at a snail's pace and they've had several derailments, but that shoe will be still the best product on the market. In my opinion, when it finally comes to life and it is coming to life, I'm supposed to get some in a few weeks. We'll see if it happens, but they're making a lore one and a lore two. It's a completely flat platform. So that's, okay. so principle is that one, is that the, the custom setup or is that just a yeah. stock shoe? No, no, it's, it's a, it's a, 3d it's based on a 3d scan of your foot yeah and it is a custom completely custom carbon fiber molded cycling shoe 3d printed yeah. carbon cycling yes. shoe we learned how to 3d print carbon like yesterday that's why this project has taken so long to come to fruition I, they're, re I, they're I, literally I, reinventing the shoe but it's a completely flat platform i know right? See, if i was honestly if i was going to give you guys the best advice i could i'd say forget the custom stuff Go with a regular, a wide, and half sizes. That's all you got to do. I yep. can fit. You give me a shoe that fits within a couple of mil, no problem. We can make. I agree. I agree. Custom, I find yeah. you put. I had one gentleman, a pair of bonds, spent all the money, got them all custom done. Yeah. Bring them in, put the sock on, put the shoe on. It's like, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I know. You know, like I'll tell you, so I've seen it. 
I've seen it so many times. I've worked with time with the customer. I've worked with D2. I've worked with R7. I don't know why all the custom manufacturers in the US have uh, a letter and then a number for their shoe. Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, R7 D2. But um custom shoe biz is a hard gig, man. Yeah, it's a hard sure. gig. Now I've the difference, but all those every single manufacturer in the world is using either a crush box or an STS sock. Yeah to do their molding. All of them are. And yeah, there's a few little variations or they're using a laser scan on the bottom and then futzing it with the STS sock. Yeah. Um, Lore is using a 3D scan of you standing to do this shoe. So that's different. But I, I'm not saying it's going to be any easier for them to get it right. There's always going to be some adjustments there and fine tuning of algorithms and pads and whatever. But yeah. I do think there's potential because the the challenge with a conventional shoe is people are still always, they have this tendency to want to smash our toes into this pointy CD toe box, right? Yes. Yeah. And this is confusion between what is a, is ostensibly a, a good looking dress shoe, although to me they look like shit, and a shoe that actually allows your foot to spread and grow and be a natural foot. Here's, I got to give a plug for this. This is the Wilding shoe. Okay. These guys are in Germany. This shoe's amazing. Cool like basically a sock but yeah check out how cool this is this is such german hippie stuff this upper is made from uh merino a blend of merino wool mm -hmm. and uh aramid fibers but they okay. weave it in a way so only the merino touches the inside of your skin i love it oh wow so it's, it's like a merino sock like, on the foot it's like merino sock and they don't <clears throat> do not smell at all they've got a footbed that's got um coconut fibers in it cool it's an amazing so it's all probably, anyway. Yeah, fairly recyclable and natural fibers as well, Got which it. is really cool. Totally. But yeah, it's, it's interesting with that 3D printing stuff, man. Like I, I had a printer for six years now almost, and I've become, I wouldn't say an expert, but I definitely, I can, fit, I can set up motherboards and swap ribbon cables. And so I've had all sorts of problems and all sorts of successes. But what I generally do is, and I know this is sort of contra to a lot of your beliefs, and it's interesting because I just, I don't, I don't know whether it's right or wrong, but I'm definitely not getting bad feedback. Like if I set something up and someone's like, oh, this doesn't feel right, then we go back to the drawing board. But if I'm getting mm. feedback, it's like, oh, this is actually working really well, then yeah. I tend not to stress too much and, and you know let people enjoy that sort of success or that fix. But what sure. I got into was doing um, shimming and wedging because I was just finding it super expensive to buy all that stuff. And I just found it didn't work very well. So I created wedges that basically mimic cleat shapes and yep. then on top of that, create um, sort of custom correctors. So there's like the idea where if someone was five mil leg length discrepancy that um, sort of sorted them on the bike and that worked out well, and then mm. foot correction was say two degrees virus, then you could actually create a situation where you had a five mil, two degree plate corrector under the shoe and then print them a second one in case they bought another pair of shoes and they were on a trip in Europe or something like that. Mm. And yeah, just to be able to sort of give people that um, system was really helpful. So that when you undo the cleat, you don't end up with a bunch of parts on the workbench kind of idea. Nothing yeah. twists, nothing changes. Um, yeah. So yeah, they're really they're really cool. They're really powerful, powerful tools. I've ended up making a few water bottle holders for TT bikes and some grips some bar end grips and stuff for a, a shiv with a cool setup and a few little custom things like that. So I think for me, that's one thing I absolutely love about my practice that I can make really custom things you can make people. But again, stuff. in That's my cool. experience, I fuck up way more than I su succeed. I'll tell you that right now. Stuff breaks. People go out. They yeah. go, oh, yeah, I rode with that snapped off two minutes down the road. Back <laughs> to the drawing board. And again, with lore, like I say, like the problem is they're going to get people that get shoes that don't fit. Like they're not. 
I know custom is great, but at the same time, if somebody buys a 42 and a half, they get a wide, they go, yeah, this is my size. They put it on, the expectations are sorted. If you say, this is your custom shoe, you've never had anything like it, and they put it on, they don't like it, you don't get that sort of, like it, you know what I mean? So it can be tough that way. So that would be my advice for them would be to keep it simple and just Mm. give me half sizes, give me wide shoes and regular shoes so I can deal with those situations because nine out of mm. 10 people will have a shoe that's too narrow and a, a foot that's too wide. It's barely every, like the other way just and doesn't it's really so happen. It's so common. Almost, almost never happens. Yeah. Yeah. It, people are, are, it goes back into that old school belief that all suffering is good about cycling. Like you went out in the January 1st, you know, in the Northern hemisphere and you rode and everything hurt, but it wasn't just your legs and your lungs. It was your balls and your feet because it was just all being part of being a tough guy or gal and training <laughs> for the sport. And now we're smart enough mm-hmm. to know like mm, my feet don't need to be falling asleep. If you're, if you're yeah. dealing, I'll just say this to the audience. Like if you're dealing with chronic foot pain, look at your shoes, start digging into your shoes. They probably don't fit right. And they're probably too narrow in the forefoot by a good margin. Just take mm-hmm. out your existing footbed, put it on the ground, put your foot on top of the footbed. How much overhang do you have at the metatarsal heads? If it's yeah. more than three mils on each side and you have pain, there's your answer. You need a wider shoe, wider in the forefoot. Pretty yeah, simple. Go pretty start trying on shoes. <laughs> right? Right? It's so old school and simple, but people are like, oh, I never thought to do that. I use it's calipers. Like, I just use calipers. Yeah. I'll put them from med yeah. head to med head. I'll, I'll go, okay, we got, you know, whatever yeah. it is, 115. Put it on the yep. shoe and then you go, dunk, 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 and there's this 97. Mass. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> so, like, all right. But that's, no yeah, that's cool. I, I wish them yeah. well with that because our, our problem right now is that the distributorship for Lake is past hands and they're not bringing them in anymore. So I can't even get Lake uh, shoes. And the other hard part with that was, I don't know if you experienced this, but we have a big company in Australia called Bikebug, and they kind of rule the roost when it comes to online parts. Steve's conglomerate, Pushies, is a a little bit like that. I think they even own Bikebug now. But the problem was, like, they were selling shoes half of my wholesale cost. Like, I'm, you know, paying $230 for a pair of shoes, and they're on sale for $125. I was like, come on, guys. Like, how am I supposed to? And they're and they're and they when they do that, they don't realize that they're taking a product that actually works really well and totally devaluing it. Like that shoe should be double the price, and you make mm-hmm. people go in and try them on and get the right size, and then they get a shoe that works rather than dumping them like that. And it was really frustrating. So for me, I'm in in this real void where I'm sure I could get fonts in in a, in a wide. I probably wouldn't even yep. carry the regulars. I'd probably just get the wides. And if you need a regular, then we order it in instead of doing it the other way, like with Lake, where you yep. keep the regulars and then order a wide. But right. um, yeah, it's a bit of a, f- a floater. And it, I'd like to get your theory though, because that's interesting. Because I do, like I wear a 403 and my insole looks yeah. Like, yeah. like it's just a blue piece of foam. So I feel like an yep. ass right now. A little bit, you can see uh-huh. a little bit of extra well, arch. But to be fair, the, the 403 has it's a massive one. arch built into it. Yeah, you don't need anything in there. You don't need anything. It, it, yeah, and, and the 403 is a shoe that the rider has to have at least a medium arch to even tolerate that shoe, if not a high arch. It's a mm. brilliant design and it's the kangaroo leather is so nice. And the way they pattern the boas on the upper is gorgeous. Yeah, it like is it's a nice really nice shoe. shoe, but the amount, the number of riders who can fit in that shoe. And the problem is you can't even size it properly because the heel cup is too narrow for 98% of all people who put it on. So they, they can't even get their foot in the shoe and you have mm. to heat mold it to get the heel cup wide enough in my experience. Yeah, And then yeah, yeah. by the time you heat mold it, then they bought it. And it's a six hundred dollars shoe, so it's like. But I use I use the heat gun for, say, fifty percent of my clients on their shoes. Like yeah. Shimano, um, Shimano's can be bagged out. The um, yeah, specialized with their Dyneema fabric. Like you put a heat gun at three hundred degrees on Dyneema and start rubbing your fingers in there, 
and you can just you can blow an S works right out the side and make room for the med heads on the fifth side, like mm -hmm. on the lateral yep. side, and do yep. all sorts of fun stuff. So that's yeah, I'm I'm really I'm in that camp. I I go the extra mile. That's why it takes five hours. You're like you're dealing. Totally. You're not just fitting the bike. You're fitting the the, the shoe for the fifth med head. You're you're trying to create like these really lovely sort of interactions mm -hmm. between the person and the bike and yeah it's the same it's thing totally. i do for my own shoes right um mm -hmm. and i know what a difference that made for me there's a point when the bonds were unrideable and then i do this and push this out and take a little bit out here and all of a sudden now yeah. i can go enjoy my bike and to go back to one of your very earlier comments i give my riders a questionnaire i think it's up to 61 questions now and like number 58 or 57 is how many rides out of the last 100 rides would you consider mm -hmm. to be flow state rides? Yep. This is pivotal for me because I want to know what their experience is of cycling. And I get everything from 97 to zero. Right. You know, people, some people are like zero. Every ride is occupied by pain or niggles or the sense that I'm super crooked and I can't let go and focus. So that, that I love that question because it gives me a real clear picture of what their experience is and how sort of desperate they are in whatever is bothering them on the bike. The other question I offer that is very insightful to me is I ask them, are you interested in looking at band-aiding your problem or accommodating your problem? Or do you want to get to the root, the mother, the source? You give the, them an option. This is I, an option. I don't give them an option. I ask them what oh. their philosophy is. Right. Okay. 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 I see and it tells me now for yeah. me, yeah. My, my philosophy is always to teach a man or woman to fish. Always. I'm not interested in treating people. I'm not a PT. I don't want to put people on a, on a table and rub their butt or give them dry needling. That's not my gig. And I have no disrespect or dis, um, disrespect intended to anyone who's in that industry or that's their modality. We need those people in our world. Absolutely. It's just not yeah. my Part preferred way to work with people. I'm a teacher. I'm not a, yeah. I'm not a, a treatment practitioner. So that's just my philosophy. And this is the, this is the challenge I have with wedging. I'll make a blanket statement. I think all wedging is an accommodation for poor function, period. All mm -hmm. of it is. That now, I just made that blanket statement. There probably are exceptions to that. There are people who have had fusions in the lower leg, the ankle, you know, right? Maybe they've had a surgery or they smashed their ankle because got, they got run over by car or whatever. These people, you may need to make, they may need some wedging to accommodate their cycling. But those examples aside, extreme examples aside, all wedging is, in my opinion, an accommodation. And this is something Steve and I went back and forth on. He said, yeah, well, we've got to give the rider a result on the day. And I appreciate that so much. But my heart, my soul tells me my, my mission, my job here in this planet is not to treat, it's to educate. So when I have people come in and I see extremely tight internal or external hip rotation, and then they get on the bike and they feel crooked and they, and I can see that their feet aren't meshing with the pedals in a way that's even or feet are messing with the shoes, I should say more accurately. My job is to teach them on how to open their hips and improve hip function so they can actually move in the frontal plane and open the, the hip and restore femoral function, femoral head hip relationship. So Which those two- balances up the weight through the ankle and gets the forefoot lined up. And, and, and I've been through that experience myself. I mean, when I came back from Steve's, I had, I don't know, I'd have to look at my notes. I probably had one- heel wedge, three medial cleat wedges on the right, plus a huge footbed and a met button and probably some extra gizmos in there. The left, probably Packed two. Tape. Yeah, probably. 
um, <laughs> and foam. <laughs> um, and then on the left, I think I had two medial cleat wedges and maybe two heel wedges, if I remember right. I don't know. It was a million years ago. Now I'm on zeros, man. And I can't tolerate wedging. I ride it. If I find an old shoe and I put it on with wedging in it, it within seconds, I'm like, get this thing away from me. Now, totally different body. my foot function and ankle function and proprioceptive function have changed dramatically for sure. Um, but I also want to reverse to one previous point, if I may, about the foot function in the shoe. So there's a basic rule in strength and conditioning. And this rule is that you can only accelerate what you can decelerate. Okay. So meaning, uh, you can only lift what you can eccentrically deload, right? So when you're trying to build power in the gym, this is a rule that we have to respect. And power is the end result of any strength and conditioning program. It's actually the end result of any training program because power is in cycling. Power is force times velocity, right? Which really means torque times cadence. Mm -hmm. Torque is just force in a circle. Cadence is just velocity in a circle. That's all it is. Yes. And these yep. are the components of power. So power in the gym and power in the bike are really conceptually the same thing. And when we're trying to build power, we have to build the acceleration phase and the deceleration phase. Now, if what I said was true, that the heel strike is deceleration and the, the push-off phase is acceleration, and we're trapping the foot in acceleration and cycling, think about that for a second. So I don't yeah, want to trap a foot in an acceleratory position. What I want to do is have it in the shoe in a neutral position Mm -hmm. And allow subtle pronation and supination, or other way around, really supination and pronation. Well, pronation on the power phase and supination on the on the deloading phase. I want to allow both those to some degree, and I want to capture the energy at key moments in the foot's power phase, and right. help that be forward momentum on the bike. But I don't want to limit the movement of the foot. I want to allow now that the real art of the custom shoe or the the shoe that we're building in our minds has to be our hypothetical thought experiment shoe has to be to capture the movement in the right way, capture the power at the right moment without limiting the foot in the wrong way. Right. So you're allowing that movement. And that's, again, that's where I see the custom being hard because yeah, if that person starts to push, you know, 800 Watts and that foot is changing in those, this display of the metatarsal heads is slightly wider or slightly narrower. You know what I mean? Yep. You yep. can, you can have created a shoe that now actually limits that a little bit. And that's where if you have mm. another size, they can just get the next size up. You know what I mean? And get a yes. half size, five millimeters, yeah. get the wide version. Oh, okay. That works really well. It's a little bit loose. Maybe you got a mm -hmm. heat molding system with that. You mm -hmm. can touch mm -hmm. it in just a little bit and you're done. You know, this kind of yeah. thing. So it's interesting to, yeah, but no, that's, that's, yeah, I, I really, um, yeah, I feel like if you're, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head with regards to the proprioceptive stuff, but at the same time, it is, it is a, um, a tricky one because we're really, it's like. I think you talk about ice skating uphill. It's like a hard thing to do because the shoe companies just don't come to the party. So I guess your situation would be, <laughs> mm. it's, you know, we get, we do the best we can. We make sure that there's no compression around the foot and then making sure that there's enough, um, sort of art support in the sense that proprioception is gained, but there's still movement in the foot. And yeah, mm. David's nailed it with his, his GHs like that. Cause there is, it really isn't a lot of other, um, options there either. Is there, there's, it's, it's not quite that I'm aware of. There's so would none, you use an insole in a lower? Would you put, would you, is it designed to work with an insole or is it just foot straight in the shoe? So initially it was not designed to work with an insole. And I've had many conversations with Stefan and, uh, the other guys at lore about this. 
and we'll see now they're talking about possibly offering a modular arch option for the medial arch. I don't know what that's going to look like yet. I have to have more conversations with him about that. So that is a yeah. question mark for me at this time. I think it's probably in development, but I've found, you know, for a long time, I rode the bonds with just an Aboso insole on the bottom, mm -hmm. which is a proprioceptive textured insole, but it's completely flat. It's not really an insole. It's an insert. It's just a flat piece of, of fabric with a nubby texture on the top. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that texture then with it, with it completely flat on the bond, of course, there was a void under my medial arch and different areas of the foot had different pressure points. And I rode that way for quite a while on the bond, maybe mm -hmm. a year. And then I started experimenting with adding the G8 arch underneath that Naboso footbed. And I found it just enhanced the experience. For that. You had enough yes. room in the shoe for that. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. For sure. I find that can be tricky too. Sometimes like putting in, you all of a sudden there's yeah. not, not enough room. So um, I'm using a, a level, I think I'm on a level one or level two. So it's one of the lower ones for sure. And I, I don't have exceptionally high. I actually, I what's, tend what's to your, scooch mine back. Yeah. Most people on the bike using G8. Yeah. So if you put one forward and put one back or switch it for them, all, the, yeah, usually back. Okay. So that's, yeah. that's, that's what I found worked best like for me. Support sort of up in that. That's it. That's it. When you get the apex under the navicular, it feels like there's this tripod of, of kind yes. of optimal you f i feel like the the arch domes in a way that puts me towards that subtalar neutral baseline but then i can yeah. move you know pronate or supinate away from that baseline as needed because oh, there's just yes. no movement in the shoe yeah so you're creating that movement on a completely different axis in the foot for the cyclist which would take away really the need for wedging in any way because th that movement is actually happening right if, so you're going to put yourself into a tailor neutral position using your foot that's strength. the idea as yes. opposed to yes. Yes. manufacturing that. Okay. Yes, I got absolutely. Yeah, okay. If we if we support the foot into some sort of <laughs> stubtail or neutral, then all prosthetic devices weaken the body, right? Yeah. So the foot's just going to become weak and passive. And and I see this over and over again in my movement screens. You know, when I'm watching people do a bodyweight squat or a lunge, you put people in a lunge position or have them stand on one foot, and most cyclists have crap for ankle stability because – Cycling makes weak, weak feet and ankles. I see that right. over and over again, right? right? Over, especially people only ride their road bikes or like your guy who has a, a super nice, um, S eight and all he rides around in his, is his torch shoes or whatever he's got or his, you and know, then, fancy and puts the tiny little banker shoes on with the pointy toes afterwards too. Right. So it sits at a desk all day. Yeah. Killing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not good. Yeah. Interesting. Oh that, yeah, that's fun. Oh, I, I look forward <laughs> to it, Colby. Like I say, I, it's a bit, it's a hard over here. Like we really, our access to the cycling stuff isn't quite as easy. It takes a little bit longer and mm. stuff like that, but that's, yeah, it's kind of why I turned to the, trying to make my own custom stuff at one point anyway, was just to solve that problem. But it seems like I yep. might not even need it. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Stuff. I mean, it'd be really cool for you to start printing some 3d kind of G8 ish pliable arches that were based off your art shape. I mean, I think he's got a pretty good art shape going, but you could make your own. That's a cool project you could play with. I don't know if that's a thing your printer could handle, but just as an oh, idea. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You would create it. It would have to be like a matrix. So you would create essentially yeah. what you're doing with the 3D printed saddles. Yep. So you'd have to print yep. some kind of soft material, um, which is basically just a nozzle change, and then you change your settings. So mm -hmm. most, most filament printers can do all sorts of cool stuff like that. Mm. But yeah, yeah. Again, it just creates, though, then it creates a situation they come in, okay, you need one of these and then you got to see them again. And then you got to, you know what I mean? It creates all this extra mm. work at the same time. Like it, I mean, I don't know, there's, there's gotta be, there's gotta be this flow that way. This goes back to, you know, one of our earlier points about how 
if someone comes in and they're a 62 on our one to a hundred scale mm-hmm. and you start dropping nuggets and planting seeds and they are like super in and they start listening oh, to right. podcasts and they're, they're into your methods and, and you make some custom arches for them or you do whatever or you give them a bunch of exercises to improve their foot function, you know, and you're giving them, you know, lateral lunges and, and ways to move their body and restore hip function and they get looser and better and stronger. And then they're coming back to you regularly. Then there's a, there's a potential for downstream, we'll say relationship where you can teach them more and they come back and hire you for hourly rate for an hour and a half for two hours, you know, every couple of weeks and you're teaching more exercises and you're putting them on the bike and refining their fit. And maybe you're making subtle adjustments as their bodies change. I mean, bike fit isn't a static thing. We all like to think like, this is my saddle height, but the reality yeah. is you're 43. What happens? How has your satellite changed from when you were 38? And now again, when you're 48, like your body will have changed. You've done different things. Yeah. You surfed more, you surf less. You did more strength and conditioning, less hiking. Maybe you have an injury. Maybe your injury, your old injury heals because yeah. you figured out, you know, because you've progressed. So it's like bike fit is not static. It's not a thing that we just fix in time. We like to yeah. imagine that it is. Our clients like to imagine they pay for their bike fit once and that's their saddle height and everything from then on is simple. But yeah. No, I try to make that really clear. I try to make that super mm. clear with people. And it's interesting you say that too, because that's sort of the Gary Kirk point again, is like, how do we create a more holistic fit situation yes. for customers? And then also, just on a side note, that's why I feel cleats that don't have much float are really um, not a good sort of way to go because of the fact that like you can wake up and you might've slept a little bit funny that night and sort of maybe the yeah. quads a little bit tight or your ITB is a bit tight on this side. And you just need that little adaptation that morning. The, the heel wants to sit a little bit further out or a little bit further in. And if you don't mm. give it that room, like you're in big trouble. So it sort of, yeah, it's Agreed. interesting. And then Agreed. you can sort of take that. So really the best setup would be like a nice, uh, setup with maybe, um, a speed play wide open float on a art, you know, a foot bedless, you know, bond that's wide enough for you with something just kissing the arch, just a little kiss, just to give the person that balance point, you know, somewhere in that zone. That's a great model. Um, assuming that your speed plays don't have a lot of play in the frontal plane, which I'll say, I'll just say this on the pod, like since Wahoo bought them, that problem problem has gotten a lot worse, a lot Dude, worse. Yeah. I, I ride them. Okay. And I don't, okay. I, I, I notice it if I move my foot, like if I said, you on the Wahoos light, or the on yeah, all, yeah, actual the proper speed plays. Yeah, on Wahoos, no, okay. Wahoos with the carbon and the tie, um, with okay. the zero. Are you on the the please. power pedals or the regular ones? Regular ones. Yeah, okay. I I generally have. Yeah, my philosophy about training and power. I'm sure we could get all into that. I just <laughs> try to chase the guys down. I'm just like, if, if I'm not <laughs> keeping up, I need more power. It doesn't matter what it says on the head unit, man. I got to make more. But um, I just find that never in my cycling when I'm standing or sitting or climbing or descending do I feel unstable because of that motion. And I don't have any, I don't have any medial um, wedges so in, here's in the, that new here's shoe. the challenge for me is we're talking about foot correction and we're talking about trying to narrow down. You know, as you said, Steve said, oh, your, your correction's really good, but it's off by one wedge. Mm. Well, there's easily one degree of play in a, in a brand new Wahoo pedal with a cleat in the yeah. frontal plane. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. So what? Pardon me. What the fuck is the point of spending 45 minutes doing foot correction, trying to dial in these millimeters of wedges when the pedal is moving around anyway? Fair enough. And especially if someone's pronating on one side more than the other, then they're going to be, you know, having this medial. So you've got three wedges on the right side. I'm just making up examples. And the, and, but they're all, that's all the the reason they have three wedges on that side. They tested strong is because they've got this, you know, medial rotational hip instability on the right side, their, their yeah. femurs internally rotated, you know, they've got disastrous stability on that arch 
and everything's collapsing and they're smashing into the pedal. And so they need three wedges, but then that's of course the side they're going to pronate more on. So then they, they're going to take full license of that degree of play in that Wahoo system. But on the yeah. left, they've only tested positive, tested strong for one wedge, but that's the side they don't need it. So now we've sort of exacerbated. So really we're getting between one and three quarters and two and a half degrees on the right, depending on how hard they're pushing and how hard they're going. Yeah, and on the left, much. their foot's somewhat neutral. Like this is only going to screw things up further. So what do you use? What What is your, if you were going to connect a bonch shoe mm. to a pedal at the end of a crank yeah. with, again, just right. a little tickle, we'll call it a little tickle under the insole and yep. a nice amount of movement for splay. The, the side of the shoe isn't coming up, you know, under yep. the fifth metatarsal ray. And as we got a little, you know, like it's all fitted nicely. What is the connection to the pedal that we should be using? Should we create a bond with a flat rubber sole and a grippy mountain bike style pedal? <laughs> with the we connect I mean, the shoe directly to the pedal. Do we? Yeah. Like, no, I, th I mean, I'm not saying don't go clipless. I'm not, I'm not James Wilson who owns the catalyst pedal company who thinks that all mountain bikers should be on ones. flat pedals. Yeah. The long ones. Yeah. Those are amazing yeah. by the way. Really good tool. <laughs> They're great pedals. I use them on my townie and I love them, but I'm not saying everyone should be riding around those. Certainly not most riders on the road. Definitely not. Or even gravel. Uh, you'd probably take yourself out because your feet will come off the pedals, especially if you've been riding clipped in for years and you're used to that. As soon as you get in a technical situation, your feet will fly off. You're not used to yeah. it. So, but uh, great question. What do we use? I mean, I think a Shimano is the most solid way to go right now in general. There are con pros and cons to all these systems. And, you know, a Shimano cleave will work when you put it to the bottom of a bot. So you have to post it up on the medial back corner because it'll warp and then you get play in it that way too. This is a, a problem of bond. Their, their curve on their last, on the exterior of their sole, just doesn't quite match the curve of cleats. So you have to futz with it. Um, you think that they you can still use that out by now. <laughs> they would, yeah, cleats right? haven't changed, man. It's been 20 years. I don't know what the deal cleats. is with that. It's anyway. like one challenge. It's just a challenge with bond. So yeah, you would think they would have figured it out. Or you use a four-hole bond with a speed play, a Wahoo pedal, and then you can rig to take out the play. And I've managed to figure this out. It's a bit complicated. I'll have to do a video about it. I'll just, um, I'll just bullet point it. So, you know, that when you use a four hole shoe and you use a speed player, Wahoo pedal, normally they, they now finally started reselling them. They used to have this stainless steel plate. It was called a sole protector. Yes. Yep. They right? actually have you them back in stock now. They have them in stock. Yeah. Yes, they do. So it's yep, a, that's it's a very, very thin piece of stainless steel to describe for the audience. That's what three tenths of a mil thick or something, two tenths of a yep. mil, just yep. a really thin plate. And it protects the on a four hole shoe, the pedal body would contact directly into the carbon and would eventually wear a hole in the pedal body and you would get play. And so they made speed play. Richard Bryan made this stainless plate to go in there. And then over time, of course, I realized that the three hole system was even better with that four hole plate installed because it made the, the black plastic base plate, the three hole adapter more stable because that's plastic and that would wear too quickly, but the stainless is more durable. So I recommend people use them in all of their speed play plates three hole or four hole. It doesn't matter. I always recommend that people use these. I like them a lot. So you can take that four hole stainless plate that, that two tenths of a mil thick plate and you put one on the shoe and then you take another one and you cut it into a disc and you put it inside the hole and it takes up the vertical space between the top of the pedal body and the cleat. And it eliminates the play in the frontal plane. This is Probably for somebody who doesn't know what we're talking about, I don't blame you because it's a bit nuanced to describe. Yeah, right. But you yeah, have to so put it in there. You have to cut it in just the right way. So it's yeah. about a mil too long on the width so that the okay. cleat straps it in place. 
but you cannot yeah. cut it too long where the springs are. The springs won't engage correctly. So right. it's, it's pretty nuanced. It, and I'm, it'll bend the spring around. The cleat will sort of bend in its shape. Or the way. spring just won't engage. And it, you'll think you're clipped in and you're not. And then you pull out. It sounds like what they need to do is actually take the base plate and where the cleat sits on it, have that sort of raised a bit of a lump up. So it almost sits down over top of it. I had a conversation yeah. with Ian Boswell about this at Steamboat. I was like, look, you guys have problems with your pedals. And he was like, oh, we should talk with the general team and nothing's <laughs> happened. Is, He's like, we need I feedback from fitters like this, right? Yeah, this is honestly, Colby, this is what I dream about. Because I see the products day in and day out. And I could go on about Canyon. Right front ends i could oh my go God. on about right track arrow bars pedals posts on felt c posts felt c posts one of those 3d ones just shoot me man just shoot me so specialized sure trek c posts felt c posts yeah. it's pretty funny yeah. but um it's totally funny because the, the rider walks in the door and you look at you looking at the crank length and the cleats and the shoes and you look at the c posts you go oh boy this is gonna be yeah <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you know what i do i just say look this is the limitation we're gonna it's like at the front end like if someone comes in with a fully integrated front end and it's jacked up as high as it goes the bike fit becomes a, a handlebar um sort of that that's your that's your bottom bracket now your new bottom bracket is your handlebar because your that's handlebar. the center yeah. point of the fit so Yep, yep. But I'm sure we could talk all about that, but I know you've got to get um, get your day going on. I'm sure you um, do too. Yeah. Well, actually, I got about 45 minutes of sleep, and then I'm going gravel riding up at uh, North Head, our local national park, to see if we can see nice. some whales and ride oh, wow. through the sand. So, yeah, it's pretty special. It's an old um, sort of fort from World War II. So there's quite a beautiful headland on the on the uh, north head of, of Sydney Harbor, and yeah, usually catches sounds amazing. Up. So that'll be really good. But yeah, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Colby. Like I say, I, I, I really appreciate all your content and um, always listen to it on the rollers. And that's kind of my time to, to think about sort of fitting and stuff. But I, yeah, I really love the philosophies. And I, I always appreciate the, the how you come back to real basic principles about kindness and, and hydration and just simple stuff, right? And I think that, that um, it, no matter what level someone is on the totem pole, I think they get that. I think they need to think people were pretty pretty aware and and i think that's <clears throat> yeah really helpful with regards to lifestyle and bike fit and all the different aspects of, of what we can do but um yeah if anybody if you ever hear of anybody looking for advice about parts or um you know products that's again i think one of my strengths like i came into this game as a mechanic and as as a, a bit of an engineer for working um a lot with my hands and, and doing different things in the mountains and on the ocean and Okay. and things like this and and um, my strengths are really in that engineering side you know like steve pushed me really hard to learn about anatomy and muscle testing and i can i can pick a bone or a vertebrae or a muscle fairly easily now um and i know the body really well but again i'm always learning and that's like i'd, I'd love to go see paul check and, and do things like that as well but as far as the the engineering side of things goes i really do sort of understand how things go together and and I see enough people that I can just give you like stats on how things look. Like I say about wider shoes or all those things. So if there's ever any conversations happening there, I'm happy to um, sort of give advice or to, to talk and sort of coordinate those kind of things. Because again, that's a real interest for me that you have these bike companies and they know what the other company does. Like you can see, you can go and buy a Specialized and take it apart and go, oh, look at the C-Post clamp they use. This works yeah. really well. Or oh, this doesn't work at all. Why don't we copy right. that? And Make it easy for yourselves, right? Like it's not yeah. it's not hard. You just put two bolts, one on each side, and then you can make it work, right? Thompson already made the perfect <laughs> design, in my opinion. But anyway. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's it's been awesome, man. I, I like I said, yeah. I think since the first time I heard one of your podcasts, I was always really stoked about maybe 
potentially coming on and having a conversation and just sort of seeing where it led. Cause yeah, I, I see you as being a real, um, yeah, a real force in, in, in the industry and, and just in holistic health in general, man. Like I think you've got a really nice, um, yeah, nice view of things. And, and I do try my best to, to keep up in that sense, but, um, yeah, it's Thank very you. cool. I really appreciate it. Thank you so awesome. much for all your kind words. I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's great to hear that my pod is resonating. And, you know, every time I get that message from people, it just reinforces my passion to keep it going because that's, uh, that's all I can ask for is that people really benefit from my work. And, and I'm humbled by the fact that I can offer something to people and they really feel that it helps their lives. That's yeah. powerful for me. So all the space monkeys out there, <laughs> all the space monkeys ready to sh be shot into space. So please, before we go, tell everyone where they can find you. If you want a bike fit and you're in Sydney, please go check out Aaron or anywhere within striking distance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just fusionpeak.cc or fusionpeak.com.au is the website and, okay. uh, emails and contacts are all there, but Aaron at fusionpeak.com.au is the, the email and yeah, I'm available again, sort of like your schedule. I pretty much, I'm happy to have conversations and, um, sort of help with things, but there is a booking sort of process and we got to sort of stick to that. So I don't do too much work, but, um, yep. yeah, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's awesome. And I do try to do, yeah, my very best. I don't, um, like follow-up work is always on the house. You know, there's that kind of attitude that Steve always brought to it. And I actually saw a customer that Steve saw before, um, mm -hmm. last month and he got his new shoes. So the bike was set up. So I'm helping with shoes and, you know, just trying to sort of tie things in together for him as well in that way and making sure people get good deals and don't feel like they're, yeah, having to pay every time they come in kind of thing. I don't know. There's something about finishing a job that I think is really important. Like I, I just like one guy said to me, he actually said, he's like, oh, I think you're the only fitter that doesn't charge her a follow-up. And I'm like, what are you what? like, <laughs> how do you do a bike fit and not follow up and do this and that? I remember, I think, um, yeah, I've heard that before, but anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, a little yeah. pleasure, Colby, really appreciate it. And, um, like I say, if there's, if there's anything that comes up or anybody's wondering about things, um, yeah, and I can help and you know, I'm, I'm here. And then as well, I might, uh, look at that arch idea of yours. Cause I think that that could be a very simple sort of simple thing. Even, even if there is a podiatry arch pad I do use once in a while, that's quite clever. That's just a little simple bit of foam, but again, it's foam, right? You've got to build yeah. it up with moss and lichen or something a little, <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause that's in the old, like when you were hunting and gathering, that's what kept your arches up. Like you didn't want rocks jamming into your arch or blades right. of grass or spiky bushes. And you know what I mean? Right. So it was like, well, what your natural was your own integrity, right? Your own. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's it. We have to return to foot health. It's return to nature. That's always the the rule. The further we get from nature, the more screwed we are. And this okay, applies to all things. All yeah. things. Water, food, foot function, everything else. So good lesson. Thank you, teacher. Great. Namaste. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thanks, Colby. All right. Take, take care. care, man. We'll, we'll okay. talk to you later. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods and that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge 
understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.